Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. How are we doing today? Happy Thursday to you. We're one step closer to the weekend, although I guess uh, still a lot of things yet to be done. I want to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation and thank you for coming today. I know there's a lot going on in Washington, D.C., so your presence here is, is so much appreciated. I'd ask you to make the final check to make sure your mobile device is silenced or turned off, whichever you prefer. We are so excited today to roll out the fifth edition of the Heritage Foundation's 2019 Index of U.S. Military Strength. Each year, this index has been getting better and better. It's over 485 pages, but obviously length is not a, an indicator of quality. But it has 1,700 exquisitely researched footnotes, over 20 authors, 11 contributing authors, and so we believe it is the best ever. We've taken a fresh look at everything in the index, so we didn't just grind it out again like, like clockwork. We updated all the graphics uh, we took a look at all the competitors, made sure our information was up to speed. We believe this index is the only unclassified, comprehensive, comprehensive assessment of the United States military. There are other organizations that seek and try and make a, a slice, a judgment on some parts of the index. This is the only one we believe of its kind. And so we are therefore very proud of the work and very proud of the scholarship that goes into it. Sub, uh, subsequent speakers to me will talk about the details of the index and and things like that. So I won't I won't go into that. Suffice to say that we see uh, signs of progress in the military. So I, we are sometimes known as doom and gloom, but this year we are seeing some positive signs in the U.S. military, as, as probably as a result of the the money that's been applied by Congress and the president in the last year and a half. But we also see many areas that are either unchanged or, and have, or have not even gotten better at all. Uh, pilot shortage in the Air Force falls into that category. Other areas where, although there are signs of promise and there are talks about initiating procurement programs and research and development programs, there's still nothing happening that yet in that regard. Marking the occasion of the index, we are honored to have Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa as our keynote speaker to provide her thoughts and her insights on the state of the U.S. military. Senator Ernst's participation today is particularly appropriate due to her position on the Senate Armed Services Committee, her role as the first female combat veteran to serve in the Senate, and her 23 years of distinguished service as an Army officer, which is near and dear to my heart as a former Army officer. Joining the Senate in January of 2015, Senator Ernst has been a early and consistent advocate for a strong national defense. And her work on the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act contributed to, among other things, the desperately needed 2.6% pay raise for the troops, 
full funding for missile defense, and more research funding on how to treat and prevent traumatic, traumatic brain injury among service members. Senator Ernst will speak for a few minutes and then has agreed to take some questions, so I encourage you to be thinking of questions you'd like to ask her. And then following Senator Ernst's remarks, Mr. Dakota Wood, the editor of the index, will talk about the index, give you some statistics and thoughts, and then after that, we have a distinguished panel uh, to talk about putting U.S. military strength into context. And then at the end of all that, it'll be our pleasure to provide you some lunch in the foyer outside here. So we have a great uh, morning laid on for you, but uh, what I'd like you to do at this point is welcome Senator Ernst to the podium. Well, thank you, Tom, so much, and and it is great to be here with all of you today. And and first, I'd like to thank um, the Heritage President Kay Cole James, who is a dear friend. I, I certainly appreciate her support and and friendship. And of course, Dakota, thank you for your great work on the index. Now, I understand you served in the Marines for twenty. 20 years? Okay. They didn't break you. That's good. That's good. No, uh, we do appreciate the work, and, and I know that some of you were probably watching the little vignettes that were up here on the screen a little bit earlier, and it does point out why it is so important that we continually modernize and update our military. So I want to thank uh, Heritage's foreign policy and defense research staff as well. I know they put a lot of time and effort into this, as well as the entire foundation for inviting me to speak this morning on an important topic and one that is near and dear to my heart as well. So thank you for your continued commitment to our nation's security and provi for providing a lamppost really for these issues, especially at times when um, some of our skies seem a little bit dim. The Foundation's Index of Military Strength is incredibly vital because it gives us a guide to understand where the United States falls militarily in comparison to our friends, our allies, and most importantly, our adversaries. Setting a metric helps us determine how to better invest our precious resources and ensure that we're looking forward with a strong vision for our national security. As the index indicates, the United States is facing increasing global threats in all domains of warfare. I will be the first to admit that the world has changed since I served in the military. The threats of near-peer adversaries once assumed contained have reemerged, and they have uh, had technological intersections that are now clear and present rather than hypothetical and futuristic. The sheer number of adversaries has increased, and the threat domains are much more diverse than in years past. Airspace, cyber, maritime, and they all matter. They all matter. This complexity, as Dakota and I were just talking about a little bit earlier, this complexity will only continue to increase as the years go on. This is why I go to great lengths as a senator to ensure that I am constantly briefed by and interacting with those that serve on the ground. I strive to be a voice for our individual service members across the service branches. They know it, they see it, they breathe it, and they understand perhaps better than 
anyone the successes and the failures of the national security policies we put forth in Washington, D.C. Lives are lost and wars are won on whether a new handgun fires or whether body armor fits correctly or if a weapon system is completed in a timely manner. This rapidly changing and chaotic geopolitical dynamic requires Congress and the Department of Defense to rethink our priorities and the way we prepare our war fighters. We must cease the practice of funding high-cost systems that are not survivable across the military domains. While we should invest in low-end capabilities to counter those low-end threats, each taxpayer dollar is precious and must be spent in a manner that furthers United States national security interests. We have made great strides under General Jim Mattis at the Department of Defense, and I am a huge fan of Secretary Mattis and put my full confidence in him to give the right strategic vision for the Defense Department. For instance, our national defense strategy is the first in a decade and prioritizes great power competition. This focus will help the United States defend against near-peer and peer threats like Russia and China. However, terrorism and extremist groups are not going away, and recent anniversary of the 9-11 attacks reminds us of why we must stay vigilant. This means that the United States must retain our counterterrorism capabilities and lean more on our allies to keep America and its interests secure. On the Senate Armed Services Committee, I chair the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee, which examines a broad number of threats to the United States and prioritizes policy and authorizations to face those adversaries. This includes the Special Operations Community, the research and engineering enterprise and security cooperation with our partners and our allies. What we continue to see in terms of emerging threats is a continued blending of civilian concerns with our national security threats. Issues like trade, technology, and the economy cannot be walled off from our considerations in defense policy. Our allies and adversaries do not view these items in a vacuum, and certainly we should not either. Congress, working with the White House, has managed to get some of our top defense priorities out the door this year. This year's National Defense Authorization Act, for instance, was the earliest defense policy bill signed into law in over four decades. Four decades, the earliest. This is the type of legislative efficiency that our constituents deserve and is a product of the bipartisan nature of our committee, the strong leadership of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and the commitment to excellence by our current military leadership. Now, I will greatly miss my dear friend uh, and mentor, John McCain's presence on the Armed Services Committee. Like most members, John and I did not always agree on a number of issues. However, his commitment to the men and the women in our military served our service members very, very well. As Senator Lindsey Graham recently stated on the Senate floor, no one person can replace the value that Senator McCain brought to Congress. 
Rather, I hope that my colleagues and I can work together to uphold the strong oversight and principled approach that John brought to our committee and to our Congress as a whole. I look forward as well to the new leadership under Senator Jim Inhofe. Jim is a good friend. I think he is well-equipped to carry Senator McCain's legacy while also paving with his own personal course and style. I'm looking forward to what we can do to further protect America. Now, as a senator committed to making Washington squeal, I would be remiss if I did not gripe a little bit about the current budget situation and the practices that we have ongoing here in Washington, D.C. You see, I keep fighting the good fight every day to make sure the people who elected me feel that Washington is doing its job efficiently and effectively. For example, I was vocally disappointed that we passed yet another continuing resolution as we talked about earlier this morning, another continuing resolution last month to fund various pieces of our government. Admittedly, I did end up voting yes on final passage because of the critical need to fund our military. However, I am disappointed and frustrated that this vehicle, such an important vehicle to fund our nation's defense, was used in this manner. The bill was symptomatic of the problems facing Washington and why America truly dislikes Congress. It is unacceptable, and we really do have to do better. Unfortunately, Congress has averaged five continuing resolutions per year since 1999. It has been 20 years since Congress passed all of our appropriations bills before the start of the fiscal year. Our over-reliance on continuing resolutions has a devastating impact on military readiness. As our nation's debt topples $21 trillion, the lack of debate over our spending policies continues to threaten our national security. As a member of the Joint Select Committee on Budget and Appropriations Reform, I am pushing for reforms to ensure that we provide our armed forces with the resources they need without delay to ensure we return to an era of fiscal responsibility. As the United States faces the growing challenges we face, our success does depend on an intense focus on national strategy, the resources available, and producing policies and budgets that make America's military more lethal. This is much easier said than done, so I look forward to continuing our committee's bipartisan work to support our men and women in uniform. And with that, I want to thank all of you very much for being here today and for paying attention to this very important military index. Um, And I think we'll go ahead at this time then, Tom, and and open up to questions if that's all right with you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. So we are uh, live streaming this event, ladies and gentlemen, so I'd ask... If you would raise your hand and then wait for wait for a microphone to come to you so that our online audience can hear you as well and identify yourself, if you don't mind, and an affiliation, if you have such a thing, and then uh, <laughs> a, a concise question, if you don't mind. So, yes, sir, right here, please. Senator, good morning. George good morning. Nicholson, the Washington Liaison for the Hi, Global George. Special Operations Forces Foundation. Thank you. I uh, want to thank you for everything you've done with your subcommittee. I mean, you. just a tremendous advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the 5th of September, Congressman Smith made the comment, we need more congressional oversight of SOF, and also the push is we don't need as many COIN missions in Africa or, or CT missions in withdrawing that 
your comments on that. Well, thank you very much. Um, through the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee, I do have oversight of Special Operations Command and and an important part of our overall um, strategy and how we employ those forces. So his comments um, can be taken one way or another. I have my own thoughts on the issue. Um, again, our special operators are, are very, very highly trained, elite um, men and women, and we employ them in situations where uh, our regular conventional forces can't be used or it doesn't make sense to use them. So I, I think it's important that we continue the oversight of, of course, we should always have oversight. I do agree with that. Um, but it is not up to us to determine necessarily what specific missions that they will be employed upon. Again, I, in a discussion I, I had earlier uh, with the folks here at, at Heritage and a number of our um, media representatives is that I am not the subject matter expert on everything that is military. I rely on our military service branch chiefs, our secretaries, and those who understand the capabilities to best advise me on where to employ those forces. Now, if our service branch chiefs are saying this is the appropriate way to employ these forces and the United States taxpayer will get the best bang for the buck by employing SOF, then we should be employing SOF. Um, so I do rely on them to advise me on what the situations are, but I uh, do defer to their subject matter expertise in those areas, and I do trust them. Um, I will continue to provide oversight. I may not agree with everything that goes on, and that's where I can exercise oversight. Uh, but certainly we have tremendous leaders. Um, I sat down with Admiral Green the other day. Um, he's, he's with Naval uh, Special Warfare, and, and I appreciate the overview that they give me. And I do keep track of what is going on inside special operations, and, and I know that they wouldn't do anything to steer us wrong, and they will appropriately employ uh, those, those soldiers, those airmen, those um, Marines. So thank you. Hi, uh, Ryan Simon with the Navy League. Um, <clears throat> two questions. First, uh, we've heard from uh, the two stars in charge of sustainment and depot level maintenance that uh, they're not ready. They don't feel like they're ready to uh, adequately um, maintain and sustain the F-35 mm -hmm. as well as um, keep on schedule with um, large service combatants and um, subs at the depot level. Um, and then I'm also curious to hear uh, your thoughts. We've heard um, from a number of folks that uh, they're not sat satisfied with the in, with our investment in sea lift as a critical component mm -hmm. of um, of our military. Um, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, and again, going back to our, our branch chiefs, and, and we will expect that they will be coming in front of us um, at the beginning of this new Congress, but they need to detail all of those things out for us and the specific areas where they would like to see improvement. So uh, understanding that we need to maintain and sustain the readiness level uh, with the depots, it's very, it is very important. Um, you brought up a number of different issues, whether it's sea lift, whether capabilities, whether it is the F-35, all of those things. We need to scrutinize, but our service branch chiefs need to instruct us on where to appropriately, 
appropriately spend those dollars. Uh, we have seen, of course, with the increase in funding through the appropriations this year and through the authorizations of the NDAA, we can step up some of those activities this year. But in outlying years, uh, we do see another decline with the budget caps. So we need to figure out where to prioritize those dollars and where they will be best utilized. Um, my hope is that we can break through the caps in the future as well and continue on a strong trajectory of putting the dollars necessary into those types of issues. So uh, we need to move forward, but we need to move forward smartly. And I, I shared a conversation that I had with Secretary Esper yesterday in my office, Secretary of the Army. Uh, he made just a, a comparison when we are trying to prioritize, do we spend money on things like uh, cyber-proof surveying equipment for our military engineers, or do we focus those dollars on survivability efforts um, for our men and women engaged in combat? So it's just setting the priorities and where do we want to spend those dollars? You know, cyber-proofing surveying equipment, probably not a top priority right now. So we can direct the dollars where they need to go, but we do rely upon those service matter or those service branch chiefs to, to really tell us uh, the true story. So we'll continue to work on that. We hope that we get the real deal when the service branch chiefs come to us and the secretaries come to us this spring. Uh, we need to know how to direct the monies. So thank you. Hi, Tom. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk on how this uh, restriction information sharing has either helped or hindered your efforts in I think that's a really great point, and this is an issue that has been brought up with the Department of Defense. Uh, and their reply, of course, would be that we don't want to project to any of our adversaries in the areas where we might be lacking. And I do understand that is a, a way to uh, protect the information that we have uh, with national security. Uh, however, in the Senate, we need to understand what those challenges are so that we can make corrections. And that's why we do, just in the, in the previous question, we rely on those branch chiefs to be able to come forward and say to us, you know, we want to have a 355-ship uh, Navy, and we only have 284 ships. Uh, so we need to understand where those critical shortages are, where they exist, and then what we can do as Congress to make sure we're closing those gaps. Um, so projecting that information publicly can be a bit of a disservice, um, maybe as we look at national um, security, but I understand what the secretary is trying to do as long as they are communicating that to us maybe in a secure manner or a more personal one-on-one um, -on -one discussion. Uh, we just need to know how to close those gaps and we need to be able to talk about it, but maybe we don't want to project it to uh, those other near-peer threats. Thank you.
Senator Ertz, thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, I was an MLA on the Senate for 10 years, so I understand the stressors you work under. I worked for Kit Bond, who founded the National Guard Good. Caucus. Good, thank you. The question I have relates to toxic exposure. Mm -hmm. The reason I want to bring this to your attention is we're talking about equipment and helping our future forces. But as you, I'm sure you will agree, one of the most important things is the force that we have and the force we're going to recruit, that recruiting pool. Joseph Hickman has written a book. It's The Burn Pits, mm -hmm. The Poisoning of America's Soldiers. I spoke with him two weeks ago. Universal Pictures has bought the rights to his film. They're in casting. Mm -hmm. They're anticipating that that film is going to be out next year. One of the things it's going to do is cause the families of our future recruiting pool and those recruits to question whether or not they can depend on the Department of Defense and the VA and members of Congress to take care of them when they get sick, not just when they're charging the hill, but when they come down from that hill. And, and I'm working with uh, Bonnie Carroll, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, Wounded Warrior Project, VVA, Reserve Office Association, Enlisted Guard Association. I've, I've, they've asked me to help being an advocate for these mm -hmm. families that are going to get sick. And you may or may not know that the potential pool is $3 million. Mm -hmm. It's going to be larger than Dioxin, Agent Orange. The only reason, the reason I wanted to ask this question was to get your attention, especially on armed services, and the fact is that the Army, the Marine Corps is not even considering fielding like incinerators in, in base camps. So the Army has a plan for their future camps, and, but there's no funding right now in the pipeline to get incinerators out there. So 2010 bill, NDA said a combatant commander has to have a waiver in order to have a burn pit. But if there's no incinerators out in the field and we're out there and we've got medical waste, camp waste, the commander is still going to do something with it, right? right? And I just want to get your attention to the fact that, mm. that there's no money right now in the pipeline for getting equipment out there just to, for prevention, let alone taking care of the, the perhaps hundreds of thousands of troops that are going to get sick. So there are people that want to work with you in Congress, and I just wanted to get that your attention. Oh, so... But, well, I just wanted to give you the background as to where this question is coming from. And that is, are you uh, uh, aware of the responsibilities of toxic exposure? Mm -hmm. And is there any work right now on your committee for 2019 in terms of taking care of that aspect of, of uh, uh, burn pits? Through the Armed Services, and thank you for being a great advocate, um, through the Armed Services Committee, there hasn't been as much uh, discussion about the burn pits. I do know that that is an issue that has come up, of course, uh, with members of the Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, which will deal more with the after effects, unfortunately. But what we need to do is have the foresight to make sure that we're not working the issues from the backside and instead do prevention techniques rather than, um, than treatment uh, when a, a person becomes ill. Uh, so what we're seeing right now, and you mentioned Agent Orange, um, we do have a number of complications with Agent Orange. And, and as we see, even our, our Blue Water Navy uh, veterans that have been exposed to Agent Orange, how far do we go with that? Uh, is it a, a presumption of everyone that's ill that that's from Agent Orange? That's a lot of information to sort through. 
with the burn pits, um, one of the things that we would like to see in Congress is actually starting to track those members that served uh, around burn pits or, and were involved in those burn pit activities. I think there's a lot of exposure that we have in other countries that uh, we don't think about until after the fact, and we need to be more proactive as um, as services in looking at what might cause future illness for our members. Um, just as an example, uh, one of the infantry units that I served with as a transportation officer at the beginning of the Iraq war, they had occupied an area in Iraq where uh, when they overran the area, all of the chemi- it was a chemical storage area, all of the chemicals then the Iraqis had dumped onto that particular area. So barrels and barrels of unnamed chemicals. And the men that occupied that area weren't aware at the time that they occupied it, uh, what that storage facility had been. And then it was a couple years later, one of my National Guard soldiers uh, saw an article in some military publication, these Oregon National Guard service members, infantrymen, there were a number of them that were developing the same type of cancer, and they're all very young men. Um, so implications to various chemicals, the burn pits, going back to Vietnam era, Agent Orange, all of those things we need to be aware of. We need to be proactive in protecting our service members, and then we have to have the uh, intestinal fortitude then to care for them on the trail end. So thank you for being an advocate. Yes, ma'am. Uh, J.V. Venable, I'm with the Heritage Foundation. And uh, as you know, we're trying to repair a lot of damage that's been done over the last several years to our military. And one of the reasons that uh, the, uh, the, the big blocking mechanisms that we're going to do to do that is uh, recruiting, bringing more people into the force. Your former service uh, fell about 6,500 people short of their goal last year. Uh, the Air Force is trying to grow by 4,000 people every year, and it's a challenge. Um, the recruiting population's down. Uh, 30% of the eligible folks by age are only that amount as uh, what we have available to recruit from. So in that environment and with the challenges ahead of us, do you have any thoughts on how we might go about solving this small challenge of recruiting? Small challenge of recruiting. Small. Thank you, JV, very much for that easy question. Um, it, it is going to be increasingly difficult because, you, as you stated, uh, the pool of folks that we can recruit from is very, very small. Um, most of those 17 to 24-year-olds, that typical population that our recruiters target, uh, they're not eligible for military service, either because of the height, weight standards, physical fitness, uh, substance abuse issues, uh, law enforcement issues, you name it. Um, we have an ever-diminishing population to pull from. So whether we start giving greater waivers out to try and fill those positions, which I'm not sure where I stand on that because uh, certainly we need men and women that can meet the mission requirements. Uh, But if we do have a qualified pool, uh, we need to figure out what will bring them into the service when they have competing interests in civilian occupations that probably are offering better benefits, uh, better pay, a lot of nice time off, 
Um, and certainly being a civilian is a much more comfortable lifestyle than being a service member. So these are all issues that we have to tackle in the Senate Armed Services Committee, and our personnel subcommittee really does do a deep dive into this area, but we have to find a way that we can entice people to serve their country. And I mentioned to the group earlier that um, many of us, joined the service, I think, because we we believe in our country and we have this sense of patriotism and wanting to project our ideals and values around the globe. And, uh, and sometimes I wonder, are we teaching that today to our young men and women? Do they understand that we live in the world's greatest country? Uh, sometimes I, I get the feeling that they don't maybe appreciate this wonderful land. Uh, so it's, it's a question that I don't have an answer to today, JV. I just know that um, we do need to find a way to draw people in. And I think that not only is a service challenge, but it is also a cultural challenge right now for uh, our recruiters. And God bless those that are out on the recruiting beat, because I know that it is very difficult, very difficult. Um, so... Sorry to talk in a circle, but I can't provide you with a definitive answer today. I do know that um, by by setting the example, though, we can draw some people in. We do have a lot of members that will join because family members uh, have served. We have those that will join because they see a friend maybe that will join. Uh, just last Friday, my grandson enlisted in the Army Reserve to be a combat engineer. So I'm super excited about it. Um, I'll love it when he goes to basic training. So anyway, um, we do have a challenge out there, and I look forward to hearing from maybe all of you, too, on what we might be able to do uh, to get our young men and women to serve our country and provide that to our great nation. So God bless you all. Thanks for attending today. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, very much. Ma'am, thank you. And I want to present you with a Heritage Foundation defense coin. I guarantee you it meets all the uh, Senate ethics rules and all those types of things because its value is nearly trivial. But so thank you very much. Thank you so much, sir. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it. Well, that was wonderful. And uh, we got good stuff to follow as well. And so at over 485 pages, uh, the military index is hard to summarize. But here to give it a great effort is Lieutenant Colonel, United States Marine Corps, retired uh, Dakota Wood. And he's going to give you the assessments of the index, and he's also going to be able to answer some of your questions. Dakota Wood served for over two decades in the United States Marine Corps, and through a number of series of key assignments, he developed a broad base of experience in defense and strategy. He has served in the Defense Department's Office of Net Assessment, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, and as a strategist at the Marine Corps' Special Operations Command. Dakota Wood is the editor of the Index of Military Strength. We'll talk for maybe 20 minutes, and then he'll be happy to take your questions. So please welcome Dakota Wood to the podium. I tell you, we're just so honored that you all took time out of your day. There's a lot of things going on in the world, in town, and uh, that you all chose to be here 
with us to help celebrate this, uh, this publication is just extraordinary. We're so grateful for it. Uh, as the general mentioned, it's a big book. <laughs> so how do you take um, all the materials and try to explain it? And I'm really not going to try to do that. So uh, what we're going to do on this, i got a little magic clicker, right, is uh, I'm going to tell you about the index, and we'll talk about some of the highlights that are in the index. But uh, the intent here is that you would actually get actually into the book, right, and look at the materials. And we're always on call to answer any questions you might have online or stopping by here or going to a meeting. So uh, just jumping right into it, um, it's our uh, fifth in our annual series you've heard about. Uh, we've had about two and a half million uh, web page visits uh, over the duration from the first one in uh, 2015. We think we're going to continue with that. Uh, it seems to be a key reference for many parts of the government. We know it's at the Vice President's Office, National Security Council, and the Pentagon, uh, certainly throughout the services, Congressional Research Service. It just kind of goes on and on. So folks have found it to be very useful. It's an intentionally nonpartisan, uh, facts-based, historically rooted uh, addressal of, uh, of the hard power components of U.S. military power. So if you actually had to go out and do something in the world, uh, the hard, deployable combat power that you would send out there is what we're trying to assess. And that's a surrogate measure uh, for the totality of the military. So we're not talking about recruiting efforts and all the doctors and nurses that might go to the field. We have yet to figure out how to measure cyber, uh, but we can count ships and airplanes and flight hours and those sorts of things. So uh, for that fact-based approach out of 1,700-plus footnotes, uh, any reader can go to the source of our information and determine for themselves what it all means. Uh, what we come down to on the big takeaways are it's still too small. If you think about the end of the Cold War, uh, that was a period where it was a global contest against a major competitor. Uh, so you had to have lots of people and things in different places around the world. And at that time, the active duty Army was about 780,000 soldiers. Uh, today, the Army is 480,000. And you can look at ship counts from 550 or 560 back then to 284 today. There just aren't sufficient resources to defend U.S. national security interests that have been consistent for the last 100 years. So uh, is that affordable? Well, that's a matter of priorities that the senator had just talked about and where we want to spend our dollars. But currently, the task given to the military, it's too small, and it certainly needs to grow over time. You couldn't do it overnight anyway because of industrial capacity and recruiting challenges, but at least you have a mark on the wall as to where you need to be. continues to age. If you buy an airplane and you're flying the heck out of it on a daily basis, whether you drop ordnance on an enemy target or not, you're still using up lifespan of that airplane. And at some point, you've used it up, and you have to replace it. So this aging of the force, uh, the either inability or poor prioritization of modernization efforts, if you bring in a tank in the, in the 1980s, uh, and you plan to have it until the year 2050. I don't know the relevance of a 70-year-old tank on a future battlefield, but that's the status of the force we have today. So making ground on repairing things that have been uh, ridden hard and put away wet, uh, but it's just not keeping pace with the extent to which that we're actually using up the force. And then this idea of readiness. Are you flying enough? Are you shooting enough, driving enough to actually be competent in the things? Part of that is dependent on do you have the equipment available to do that, right? So if the equipment isn't available, a pilot can't get into a plane that's not flyable. So those big three takeaways, still too small, uh, aging, getting old, and the readiness of the force is really in question. Frontline force is sent out. All the priority is put to make sure that they're competent out in the field, but there's not a lot backstopping them. So 
that's basically the one over of the big takeaways out of the index. Uh, when we talk about this, it's already meant, been mentioned it's an independent study. Uh, we don't take funding from the government. We can't even get a military fellow here uh, because of sensitivities about maybe we might be writing something or saying something that was favorable or critical for whatever reason based on political party control. So it's a completely independent study. It's based on open source intelligence, uh, Senate records, testimony, budget documents, you know, those sorts of things. And we try to uh, talk about the nature of military power and the world that has to be uh, dealt with. Uh, snapshot in time. So if you've got a child that's going through a school, at the end of the year you get a report card and says, how did your student do during that assessed year? That's what the index is. It's not a futures document. What would the military be 20 years from now? It's you have a military, you've been spending your tax dollars on the thing. Uh, how did it do in the assessed year? How did our competitors do in the assessed year? And how have our friends and allies and the nature of the world doing it? So it's a snapshot in time. With the fifth edition, you're able to now detect trends. So our spending policies and, and uh, those sorts of things, are they helping or hurting the cause? And uh, in general, we've come to the conclusion it's not uh, being uh, very helpful. Uh, big methodology section, so if anybody questions uh, why we arrived at certain things or what our scoring metrics are, what we are measuring and what we aren't, uh, we lay that all out in very plain detail. Uh, you just have to carve out a few minutes to actually read through it or ask us after the, uh, the particular event. I do want to highlight something I think is often overlooked, that probably half of the book that you have in your hands are essays. Uh, it's difficult in Congress or in administration or with the public to have a discussion about ballistic missile submarines or the use of special operating forces uh, or what our troops have to deal with when they go into harm's way um, if you don't understand the nature of that world. I mean, what is an operational concept? What is the defense industrial base? How do we think about national security? So we saw this as a vehicle to help be informative and educational, uh, things written by top experts who really know their craft, but in a way that's very accessible to anybody who is interested in these topics. Uh, we finally got around to talking about Title X issues in this particular edition, so things like training, uh, infrastructure, uh, logistics, uh, defense industrial base, uh, those sorts of things are going to be in the essays in this particular edition, and I encourage you to look at those. Uh, we also have assessments. There are 98 major defense programs that are assessed in here. Again, the methodology lays out how we assess health of a program. Uh, but if I've got X number of KC-135 tankers, uh, and they're very long in the tooth in terms of age, I'm trying to bring on the KC-46 as a replacement. If it's only half the number, we think that that's a problem. Uh, if it's being delayed or being brought into inventory, that's a problem because the assets you have continue to age. So for every major capability platform-based and all the services, uh, we tell the public the status of that particular capability, and then if something is on deck to replace it, the status of that as well. So again, it's another reference point uh, that can be derived from this. We make ample use of graphics. I think there's nearly 40 or so in here. And all these, I'm just going to walk through them. Don't mean for you to read what's on there. You've got the details in your book. But I'm going to step through several graphics just to illustrate that there are ways of displaying information, which we really put a lot of time and effort into. John Fleming uh, really leads this effort. <clears throat> we'll talk to him about an idea. And he says, if you give me the data and explain it to it, I can come up with a really cool way to display it. So you think you hear a lot about NATO spending, whether people are spending at 2% of GDP and how much of that is going to modernization. We found a way to artfully display that so you can see in one picture where everybody stands in both of those metrics, you know, how much and what they're actually spending it on. 
this is a way to look at U.S. presence. We think historically rooting analysis is very important, so it provides context. Uh, if you've looked at you know, U.S. force presence in Europe, when we were up against the Warsaw Pact, Soviet Union way back in the day, and you see where we're at today, no surprise in that we have limited abilities on the ground to deal with major challenges in that part of the world. So providing historical basis as a reference point and then where you're at today allows you now to have a conversation uh, whether this is problematic or helpful, right? So it's just another way to display information. Sometimes it's a regional capability sort of thing. So if the Arctic is becoming more and more important economically or as, a, as an operating space, who has the ability to actually operate in the ice-crusted Arctic waters? So displaying information about heavy icebreakers uh, can be very useful. You see the Russians here have a lot. Uh, the United States, I believe, has one uh, that's U.S. government-owned and is able to actually uh, get up into those Arctic waters. The other one, I believe, is in the Great Lakes area. So if you wanted to be present, uh, reassure uh, NATO allies and other Arctic powers and deter opportunistic behavior by a major competitor, if you can't operate in that part of the world, uh, it becomes an issue. So again, just displaying information. When we talk about behavior and capabilities among competitors, um, whether they're very aggressive behavior-wise or quieter in a given year is an important issue, but also their actual physical capabilities can't be ignored. So when we see investments made by countries like North Korea or Iran in missile technologies, unless they're destroying all those things next week, uh, even if they're quiet, we need to give them some serious attention. So we try to lay out the case for actual reported capabilities of major competitors what area of the world or region that they can influence, and then, of course, the implications for U.S. forces. If you look at the Iranian spending profiles over time, uh, you can see where perhaps sanctions have taken a hit, uh, where their um, uh, economic might has uh, surged, uh, what they've been doing with $150 billion they got from the Iranian nuclear deal uh, on that. And you can see uh, the ranges and capabilities of missile systems that have been long in development and are now deployed and how that might match with their spending habits and behaviors. So, again, other pieces of information. If you want to look at measures of intent, China's Belt and Road Initiative, they realize their dependency on foreign markets, access to resources, population centers. Military power always goes along with economic interests. So if they're uh, making forays into Eastern Africa, up into the uh, Gulf region, uh, certainly a broader swath across Asia, uh, you can bet that uh, there's a rationale behind them trying to get greater access to ports and airfields in parts of the world where they have not been present in years past. So again, it's another way to display information and to elicit conversations with members of the administration, Congress, and with the American public. I talked about historically rooting. One can kind of get captured in the here and the now. We would never go to war with a major power, or it's all about counterinsurgency or whatever it might be. But when you look at U.S. history over the last 100 years or so, we find ourselves in a major conflict about every 15 years, the Spanish-American War on. So you just march across the timeline. We look at how much military power the U.S. committed to that area, and there's this weird consistency across time, which kind of neutralizes the technology argument. So you're not comparing today's Navy against a World War I Navy. The World War I Navy was fighting other World War I navies. Today's Navy has to fight modern competitor navies in the year 2018. So this uh, application of military power, the Army routinely goes to big war, uh, something like a Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, Iraq, and Freedom, with about 21 brigade equivalents worth of combat power. 
Our argument is you need to have two sets of that so you can actually handle a major crisis in one part of the world and still have enough left over to, again, deter behavior uh, that might be injurious to your interests in other places, handle bilateral exercises, training evolutions, experimentation, etc. So this two-war capacity force doesn't necessarily mean we think we're going to be at war with two major competitors simultaneously, but it allows you the ability to handle a crisis, which always comes up, and still have the wherewithal to do other things. That leads us to doubling one-war commitments of forces, 500 fighters for the Air Force, for example. Double that gives you 1,000. About a 20% buffer will give you the 1,200. So that's where our numbers come from, is actual use, key uh, government documents, and a whole raft of studies over the last 20 or 30 years, from the bottom-up review under Les Aspen, all the quadrennial defense reports, NDP panel reports, et cetera. And so we think that our numbers are recommendations about what the country needs based on historical use and about the major studies is pretty well grounded. And so that's the metric and the, uh, the threshold. Again, displaying information, if we say that the Army active duty needs 50 brigade equivalents, well, where are they at today? They've got 31, and of those 31, the Army's assessed about half are, are a meaningful level of readiness. So in a graphical depiction, we can convey a lot of information uh, to anybody, again, to have a conversation. Another way to look at things on Navy, if you look at uh, the past, uh, ship commissioning rates were pretty high. Uh, today, we're at half those levels. So if I'm using up a ship uh, fairly rapidly, but I'm only replacing it at 50% of the level I did in the past, it shouldn't be a surprise that the fleet ages and it gets smaller over time. But you can take the same kind of argument and look at it by ship class. When were each of the individual ships brought into inventory? And then I can put that together, come up with an average age for that particular capability set, and start to see where some of the older platforms will begin to die off, right? And that helps me in my budgeting discussions. If you look at it by ship types, if I field a ship and I expect to have it for 30 or 35 years and look at the actual age of the class, uh, how quickly am I using up that capability this might telegraph where your big spending bow waves are going to come in, right? I should expect the Navy to be coming to me with a big check, or a big bill, rather, uh, to replace classes of ships. And finally, you could look at it in terms of the totality of the fleet. So the U.S. Navy, for example, about half of it is 20 years old or older. <clears throat> so when you look at naval power, distributed, being in more places at one time, having a rotational base, uh, if the 7th Fleet roughly has about 50 ships assigned to it on a regular basis and the Chinese Navy is going to be 350 ships in two years, uh, you can see some of the imbalances uh, that exist. So another way, it's another way to explain or describe information. We can look at ground vehicles the same way. For the Marine Corps, their major platforms, most of which were brought in the 1970s and 1980s. So I field it. I make efforts to upgrade from time to time with new optics or a gun system or a communication suite. But the basic vehicle itself, at some point, its geometry, how it's designed, uh, putting more money into maintaining something that is becoming obsolescent. And at some point, I actually have to recock and, and get out some, uh, some new designs in the field. So we try to do these for each of the services. When you look at air power, uh, the number of aircraft and different types that the Air Force has had in the past and where they're at today, and you see that this top number here is a little over 1,000, almost 1,300. That's all of the airplanes in those particular categories. Okay, So when you start track, taking out operational tests and uh, 
uh, evaluation, uh, your trainers that are in various training and replacement squadrons, you get down. Actual combat coded aircraft are about 924, I think, isn't that right, JP? And so when you look at those airplanes, how many now are flyable based on availability of maintainers and repair parts? And it's no surprise then that the Air Force is having a difficult time getting flight hours for its pilots to maintain competency or having a rotational base to get aviation assets in and out of certain regions of the world. So again, we're trying to cram a lot of information into a graphic and then display it. Uh, this graphic you see on the left side of the screen is probably my favorite one in the whole book. You know, it's kind of like uh, Napoleon's March to Moscow, if you're familiar with that old graphic. <clears throat> this here is basically a history of U.S. nuclear power. And at the lower end, uh, when we started introducing weapon systems, you can see uh, the length of time a particular weapon was in inventory. And the height of that line was a, uh, the quantity that were produced. And then the coloring has to do with the yield that was produced. So in a snaggle snapshot, snapshot, you can see how the nuclear enterprise has changed over time and where we're at today. And then we look across the pond and we see the kind of developments and experimentation and innovation occurring with Russia and China. And it gives us pause, at least, to see how our inventory has kind of leveled off and then dropped precipitously. And that we see that our major competitors aren't holding to the same kind of self-imposed restrictions. So that was just some examples of the types of information that are in the index, and I would encourage you again to, to get into the details. If you have any questions, happy to, uh, to discuss those. In terms of the major assessments, and I'm just going to go through these pretty quickly, uh, these are the top light things. So if you had to go out into the world to defend the United States' critical interests, uh, the world's a pretty favorable place. We can pretty much go where we want to go. We've got pretty good, strong alliances. Most of the places you go to have got mature theaters in terms of airfields and deep water ports and that sort of thing. And there's just not a lot currently that's inhibiting us of going someplace uh, to, to uh, take care of business. When you look at competitors, they have gotten very serious about improving their capabilities. So you look at advances in uh, research and development and artificial intelligence and cyber, uh, China getting serious about a blue water navy with aviation uh, platforms out there and their carriers and all that. Um, it, it's a much more serious place. I was talking to the senator earlier that in the Cold War, you had one major competitor, the Soviet Union, right, basically Moscow. So if you were signaling from the North Atlantic or the South Pacific, uh, all those signals are going back to a certain leadership echelon. Today, the world's is still the same size. We've got four major competitors. So there's four capitals. Uh, what we're doing in the Baltics may have no bearing on what's going on in the South China Sea, and our competitor in Beijing may actually take advantage of something like that. So uh, it's a much more complicated sort of world. And with the U.S. military, I've already mentioned it continues to age. It's uh, stabilized in terms of size, but it's too small, and uh, we just don't have the wherewithal in terms of availability platforms, time on the calendar, and then money to provide for fuel and munitions and that sort of thing to maintain readiness at the levels that the services themselves would like to be at. So I mentioned uh, specifically about uh, Europe. There's just some more details in that area. Uh, Europe, again, a very... Uh, good place in terms of relationships because of the long history there, but they've got their own challenges. Huge flows of migrants into the area, a lot of domestic squabbling, there's um, political fracturing either within the EU or with among NATO members for various reasons. Uh, they're burdened with their own debt loads. Uh, when the government's heavily subsidized their citizens' lifestyles and you want to make a change to start pumping things more into uh, defense spending, if we think we have a challenge, 
uh, our allies across in Europe uh, are doubly so. So, um, you know, good news stories and that people are waking up and they're more uh, concerned about what's going on uh, with Russia, but the, their ability to make rapid shifts. Within the past year, Germany couldn't even put submarines out to sea, right? So um, it's a small forces and uh, little ability to make rapid changes uh, in a very near future. In the Middle East, you guys have been tracking the news, I'm sure. Everybody's at war with everybody, it seems. Iran's much more aggressive in supporting various terror groups as proxy forces, uh, big competitions between Iran and Saudi Arabia, Iran and Israel and others, and it's just a very fractious, trouble-prone area. Um, Why do we think it's important? Well, a lot of energy comes out of it. Energy is a global commodity. We certainly have long-standing alliances with countries like Jordan and Israel, and so you just can't ignore it, but it's problematic. And Asia is just dominated by China. China's aspirations, economic power, uh, Belt and Road Initiative uh, that's going out there. So if you're a country like uh, Vietnam or Japan or the Philippines uh, or South Korea, uh, you've woken up to this thing, uh, want to take it seriously, but it's going to take a while for them to uh, to adjust. So uh, on the threat side, a couple slides here, Russia and China, the big pacing threats. Uh, we've already talked about a bit about the national defense strategy. The senator brought that up. Naming names. So it's a world now, great power competitions. Russia and China both dominate in their respective regions. They've been making serious investments and some serious capabilities. Vladimir Putin has said, whoever masters artificial intelligence is going to rule the world. And we see the types of cyber threats that are coming out of the both the Asia region and the, uh, the Russian um, uh, uh, buildings uh, outside of Moscow. Uh, they're getting uh, some pretty serious capabilities there. So uh, their activities and behaviors are fairly aggressive, and they're backing that up with real-world, uh, high-class capabilities that, uh, that we should be accounting for in our own portfolios. Um, as we would move uh, other areas uh, with North Korea and Iran, North Korea has been quieter the past year, but they haven't disassembled anything, so we still have to take them seriously as a power with their missile capabilities. Again, I mentioned Iranian uh, overtures in the Middle East, much more involved in the Syrian conflict, in Yemen, and providing support to groups like Hezbollah and others that uh, hopefully will do their bidding. Uh, certainly, it's uh, harmful to our own interests. And so these are problematic. We try to show uh, on the graphics uh, where things have changed uh, from one year to the next, and it's illustrated, as you see there, with the North Korean uh, behavior. Uh, terror groups, uh, there's kind of a balancing that goes on. So during the year 2018, Islamic State thankfully took a lot of hits, uh, not the player it was a year ago. But then you see the rise of Hezbollah and capabilities it has with unmanned systems, state support from Iran, uh, rocket and missile types of capabilities. Uh, so though you make progress in one area, you lose some ground in other areas, and that's what we try to be aware of. You know, Taliban back in the march in Afghanistan, uh, al-Nusra Front in Syria, uh, al-Qaeda and its affiliates, uh, still affiliates with Islamic State through parts of uh, North Africa and all. So when we look at terrorism as kind of a regional and global phenomenon, destabilizing the governments, and it certainly draws the attention of the United States. So it's a problematic area, and we feel that when you aggregate all those together, uh, the threat environment on a scale of one to five is at that four. It's at the high level, and it's not something we can actually walk away from. And then try to capture that on a single slide and show patterns over time. In terms of the uh, U.S. military, um, again, it's against our benchmark of very ready forces of sufficient capacity to uh, defend U.S. interests on a global scale. 
and that those forces are competent and ability to sustain operations over time. So when we look at all of that, it's not an indictment of an individual soldier or airman or marine. You know, these are great sons and daughters of America out there. But when you look at it institutionally, <clears throat> do they have modern equipment? <clears throat> are a sufficient number of their units that acceptable as a readiness to, to go off to war? Um, they've called upon, and they will be. And do you have enough size so that you've got time to train, experiment, maintain competencies, and not wear out the force with really extended deployment times, right? So with that in mind, with the Army, they've really invested a lot in uh, carrying out uh, Secretary Mattis's direction to get ready for major power competition. Uh, a lot of rotations through the National Training Center and the, uh, uh, the other training centers that they use to uh, figure out or rediscover what big war is like. It's not doing small training packages or patrols through town. Uh, armor against armor, combined arms uh, maneuver, uh, integrating fires, and all that sort of thing. So they made some progress in relearning those skills, but you're still dealing with some old equipment, and again, the number of brigades is too small. So we've uh, looked at that. When you go to the Navy, uh, unchanged from last year, uh, and it's just a fleet that's under a lot of pressure. If you've got 284 ships, uh, and the build rate is just problematic because we don't have the shipyards, uh, to really crank out more vessels, then you uh, find uh, maintenance that uh, you have to take care of with one ship is more uh, extended than what you had thought. So when it goes into the shipyard, shipyard, it's in there for a longer period of time. Uh, an opening isn't there on schedule for the next ship to come in. So you have this mounting, kind of accumulating deferred maintenance uh, sorts of problems, which increases the cost of repairing the ships and it decreases the availability of platforms for everything, from deployments to uh, working with the Marines to you know, rediscover amphibious types of, uh, of capabilities to do the types of presence missions that uh, they're always called upon to do. So, again, capacity can be a driver <clears throat> in terms of capability and readiness of the force, and we find that the Navy is really struggling with basic ship count and the uh, time available during the day to actually get good at, at fighting the ship uh, uh, doing the skills necessary to work the ship, uh, damage control, uh, navigation exercises, you know, the uh, accidents from a year ago or so really uh, put a painful point on those types of issues. When we look at the Air Force, again, smallness is, is a big deal. <clears throat> if I don't have ready, available aircraft and I don't have sufficient maintainers, maintainers with the skill levels need to really do uh, repairs effectively and um, in an efficient manner, <clears throat> then I don't have the platforms that the pilots can use to go out and regain skills. Uh, JV has always beaten me up about uh, <clears throat> what flying was like uh, during the, uh, uh, the old days, uh, which really aren't that long ago, but you had to have 200 to 250 hours a year to really be thought of as competent in a frontline unit. And if you were at 150 hours or less, you wouldn't even be deployed, and I believe you used to make fun of the Soviets for these very low levels of flying. Uh, across the Air Force, average number of flight hours is 123, 132, so 132. So our average today is below the average that we made fun of uh, the Soviets uh, long ago. And it certainly falls short of the 200 to 250 that used to be you would need some competence. And even with the frontline planes like the F-35A, I believe it's at 65 or thereabouts uh, hours in a given year. <clears throat> so if you're only flying once or twice a week, it's really hard to be competent and confident in employing that particular weapon system. So that leads us to the types of scores you see on the screen. Uh, for the Marine Corps, it's just small. Uh, when I was in, we had 27 infantry battalions. 
and then the associated organizations, you know, your aviation squadrons, the logistics uh, units that would make all of that kind of uh, possible. They're down to 24 now, um, stood up additional capabilities like MARSOC and MARFOR Cyber and other sorts of things. Uh, but that's not really deployable hard power. It augments, it amplifies, there are other ways of taking the fight to the enemy. Uh, but uh, typically, uh, close combat has been the Marine Corps' forte, and they just have small capability for doing that. Only about half of the aircraft are flyable, uh, again, which makes it difficult to have deployment rotations and maintain competency in your force. And uh, this idea of readiness, you know, how much of my force is actually ready to go to war also uh, continues to be a little uh, complicated. On the nuclear enterprise, uh, Michaela Dodge, a uh, sad news story for us. We're actually losing her, uh, heading over to Senator Kyle's office for a few months. But uh, she really dove into this. And it's not just capacity, capability, and readiness for the nuclear enterprise. It's much more than that. It's the human talent. It's the infrastructure, <clears throat> uh, the delivery systems, the warheads themselves, testing programs. And so she's looked really at the depth and the breadth with a lot of colleagues in this field and come up with these assessments. So uh, confidence among the allies that we're serious about maintaining a nuclear umbrella uh, is high. Uh, warhead surety programs, pretty good. Uh, we need to modernize delivery systems. So that's where you're you know, getting into some problems. The infrastructure, the actual laboratories and facilities that would do this sort of work are ancient. And the, the subject matter experts uh, are retiring and having difficulties bringing in uh, new blood. If you're not doing innovative things, why would an engineer or a mathematician or a physicist want to join that effort, right? So it has to do with the totality of that. We give it a middling score. Uh, we were very excited to see renewed emphasis on modernizing America's nuclear capabilities, and we hope for good things on that. So in conclusion, we think that if you have a small force uh, and we're not revealing anything that our competitors don't know. They've got intel analysts to look at this stuff as well. Um, if they view too small, <clears throat> not at the acceptable or desired levels of readiness, and aging equipment with very problematic modernization programs coming in, uh, how does that affect deterrent value of the force? If I'm Russia or China, do I feel deterred uh, from getting into places like Ukraine uh, or Georgia, uh, or uh, parts of the uh, East and South China Seas, militarizing islands. So we think the, deter the uh, deterrent value is certainly being compromised. And because we've actually been in this bathtub, not for a few years since the Budget Control Act or even 2001, it's actually been 25 years in the making. So since the end of the Cold War, happy decade of the 1990s when we didn't have any competitors, spending really fell off. And our concern is, is that the, new, the normal of lower defense spending relative to historical needs and real-world uh, requirements uh, is, is become a shock to somebody's system, uh, certainly in the political establishment. We talk about what America actually needs to have uh, to secure uh, U.S. interests. So that was the big takeaway. Uh, I think maybe a minute or two for questions. No? Move on. Five minutes, so if we have any questions. Yes, sir. <clears throat> you're the last person I want to ask a question. You actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, Pat, if you could grab yeah. one. Thanks. Pat Towell, CRS. Um, first, the, the, the use of graphic presentation, Dakota, I mean, that's something I have to think about a lot. You know, we're conveying complicated information to people with very little time, and, boy, you've given me a lot to think about. This is very impressive just from that standpoint alone. We've got a, a great team. <laughs> a lot of the indices that uh, the dimensions that uh, are quantitative, uh, whether it's number of event items, you know, 13 carriers, 50 BCTs, 
or uh, 250 flight hours, or geez, I used to know what the tank miles a year was, 850, something, I remember something. Yeah, like that. Anyway, any of those things. I, I suspect implicitly we all default to the notion that there's a linear relationship, you know, uh, you know you're, how bad off you are depends on how far up you are. And in fact, that's probably not true, that there's some minimum level mm-hmm. just to fill the pipeline, and you, you don't even start up the graph of adequacy at all, so you make that. And then you get up, and maybe the curve starts to flatten out, and the incremental contribution of that 46th BTT or the, or the 47th, you, mm, did, have you, I, and I will, honest, I will plow through the book, but uh, have you made any, did you address that kind of question at all? We have those kinds of discussions inside the team. And again, you know, the introductory section to the military assessment chapter, was that a long uh, sentence right there, is really important because um, with the experience on the team, we we know that there are so many things that uh, make a military force credible. Leadership, operational and employment concepts, all the supporting logistical infrastructure we talked about, maintainers, um, ISR, uh, you know, your reconnaissance capabilities. So it's not just the tank. What makes the tank and the tank crew actually effective? We don't know how to measure those, you know. So how do I plot that on a graph uh, if it's, you know, that's people-oriented, uh, psychological operations, you know, deception kinds of techniques and camouflage. So all these things go into it, and we understand that those are issues. We just don't know really how to plot them. Uh, but again, talking with uh, Tom Callender, you know, career submarine guy, J.B. Venable, a career Air Force uh, F-16 pilot, uh, our boss, uh, Tom Spohr, been around for forever. I think he worked with Omar Bradley. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they'll talk about this, right, that, that it takes a while to kind of come up to speed with what am I dealing with? What is this a tank or what is this airplane? Um, <clears throat> a new ball player coming out of college, you know, into the major leagues, I know how to hit. But do I really understand the game? You know, can I read the field and know where I need to be uh, to intercept the uh, puck if you're you know, Wayne Gretzky, right? So um, you're, I think you're right. I think I'm coming in initially, figuring out what it means to be in the military and to be a crew member or a, or a pilot or what have you. And then you've got this dramatic increase in competency and in confidence that I know what the heck I'm doing. Uh, and then it kind of levels out. But that leveling out, uh, again, I keep referring back to my good friend JV. He'll talk about if I'm flying four or five times a week, I really get good. You know, um, if I start to drop off, it's like working out. You know, if you drop off for a couple weeks, it just takes a while to regain that competency and, and an understanding the fingertip feel of what's going on. So I don't know how to graph that. Um, but uh, maybe we'll make a, take a sound bite and put a little CD-ROM or something in the back end for the next one. Does that, did that address it or talk to it? Yes, ma'am. Or whoever's next. Hi, Dakota. Uh, Jerry McGann, George Mason University School of Business. Uh, question for you, kind of drawing on that, um, that question. Your, your focus here is on, you know, capacity, a lot of it. It's on, you know, comparing, you know, the current force versus the force in the past and so on. And, you know, there's, there's challenges with that. And so I, w- I was wondering if you um, have you thought about how to address, I mean, the F-16 of the 1990s is not the F-35 coming online today. So there's a significant qualitative difference in the capabilities of the, of the aircraft, the platforms that are coming into the force today. So, you know, but I get that's difficult to measure. Have you thought about how to address that maybe in future um, indices? And the second point 
is also that it, it kind of draws on that that um, uh, the issue about quantity. So <clears throat> the threat vectors for that are facing the country today are not necessarily, and frankly, I would argue, predominantly not going to be addressed through platforms. You know, they are you know artificial intelligence, other kind of things, which are the uh, you know the require different kind of um, uh, different uh, right. ways to address them. So um, I want to, you know, I haven't had a chance, obviously, to dig through the report. I very much look forward to it. But do you address that, the, that in, uh, the in, this, in the index as well? Right. Thanks. So you're probably tired of hearing the expression, um, you know, a ship can only be in one place at one time. I mean, it's, but that's a reality. So I could have a wicked good destroyer. Uh, once it deploys, it can't stay at sea forever. Uh, and it can only be in one sea at one particular point in time. So if I need destroyers in the Mediterranean, the North Atlantic, you know, the Pacific region, the South Atlantic, uh, and then a rotational base to make those deployments possible, right? <clears throat> Whatever my physical presence is abroad, I probably need a total of four times that uh, for maintenance, rotational bases, those sorts of things. So numbers do matter. Um, it, it's also the case that if I have a small number of very capable things, whether it's a soft team, you know, the members on that, or a flight of uh, F-35s or what have you, uh, the smaller numbers... Each one represents a greater percentage of combat power in that capability set, right? So at some point, I will lose one. Maintenance, human error, uh, enemy gets a lucky hit someplace, and I've lost a huge percentage of the totality of what that package was meant to be. So if we are going back to great power competition, you have to include attrition of forces, um, and so uh, larger numbers allow you to sustain operations over time in the face of that sort of attrition. So numbers also allow you to commit a force and have uncommitted capability either for reinforcement or to have time and resource available for training and competency and trying new things, getting innovative, right? So I think numbers is a big issue, uh, not just to have the numbers because it has actual, actual operational value. In terms of tech offset, which is the whole point of the thing, right, um, <clears throat> you look at what Russia is doing in Ukraine, and that's some old-school kinetic kind of stuff, right? So they use advanced technologies with satellite imaging, uh, overhead ISR with unmanned aerial systems uh, to target a Ukrainian battalion, and then wipe them off, wipe them off the map with an MLR, uh, you know, multiple-launch rocket system strike, right? So high explosives, kinetic action, uh, armor, reactive armor, uh, all these kind of physical aspects still seem to be an enduring feature of even the modern battlefield. So I think artificial intelligence and cyber and these other things help me to better understand enemy disposition, and it probably enhances force protection, but all of those are there so that I can more effectively target, attack, and neutralize whatever my name is to achieve the objective, right? So I think these new things are additive. They don't replace kind of old-school things uh, from a fighting knife and bayonet to a machine gun to a, you know, a, an armored vehicle. So um, we don't, can't predict the future, but I think you will see enduring value of having uh, these kind of older school physical types of things, and those need to be in adequate numbers if I want to be in more than one place at one time. Yes, ma'am. 
Hey, good morning, Megan Eckstein with U.S. Naval Institute News. Uh, I have a similar question. Uh, the graphics that you showed on the Navy fleet kind of point to an aging fleet. A lot of the classes are kind of getting up there in terms of their service life, um, which leads to an interesting trade-off the Navy has to make. With the uh, destroyer service life extension, for example, you're now increasing the age of that fleet, but you're also gaining in numbers. So I was wondering how your methodology kind of looks at age versus quantity and kind of at what point either becomes a liability or a benefit under your how you assess yeah, these are these are easy questions, aren't they? Uh, so um, I have a horrible habit of holding on to cars for a very long time, <clears throat> and then my wife will at some point take me to task for look, we're nickel and diming our way into oblivion. You know, at some point you got to pull the plug on this thing and stop repairing it and buy something new, right? Uh, so the maintenance costs can just eat up the budget. Uh, you see that the uh, Marine Corps decided to cancel its uh, survivability upgrade for the AAV. Um, just looking at future environments, and I think John Quinn's here. You can probably uh, challenge him with some of this, but <laughs> yeah, it's, um, uh, so the services are having to make that very decision that you imply. <clears throat> Do I continue to extend the life of a legacy platform <clears throat> to the point where uh, the maintenance uh, costs right uh, are, are eating my budget up, <clears throat> and it's not really giving me uh, relevant, credible combat power uh, with the unfolding of, of newer battlefields, with the ability of the enemy to bring fires you know, against me, right? And yet, you still need this numbers issue. So if the Navy is really hampered by a lack of ships, uh, how do I get more uh, ship hulls into the water? Well, I, I have steel right here tied to the pier. So I think in the prioritization within that decision-making uh, uh, system, uh, they've said the need for hulls at the moment outweighs the need uh, to uh, stop those kinds of modernization efforts and apply that money to some future ship that maybe hasn't even been designed yet. Uh, we're having our own discussion. Tom Callan and I will be having some detailed conversations about what does the future fleet architecture look like. <clears throat> so if you need to fight inside the enemy's threat ring, let's say in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, is that still a small number of very large ships, you know, deep water, blue operation, blue water operations? Or are you talking to Wayne Hughes uh, flotilla Navy, you know, where I got coastal patrol combatants and things to operate in the literal waters? You know, what kind of support does the Marine Corps need? You know, a big amphib with a big well deck or something else? And nobody knows what the something else is. So I'm very reluctant as a service to let go of something that I currently have and I'd have utility for uh, given today's challenges uh, in the hope that I'm going to be able to grab onto something that's not even off the design books. I and mean, does that answer the question? I probably do need to buy a new car. So. <laughs> I think we're probably done with that. Yes. So. Uh, let's give Dakota a round of applause here. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this uh, morning continues with a panel which will start at 1035 right here with some great experts. I'd ask you to take 10 minutes. The bathrooms are right outside the door, and uh, they're already setting up for lunch out there. I saw that, so there's something to look forward to. And I'll see you back here at 1035, please.
please, we'll get going here. You know, one of the, the things that Dakota likes to emphasize, I, he has schooled me on this, is the need to put military strength and military power into proper context with our world, with our strategy, and with our resources. And to complete our morning, we have assembled a great panel of of experts to provide context and insights on the status of U.S. military strength. I'll introduce each of the panelists, and then they'll talk for uh, however long they want to talk. No, I, I think it's probably like five or eight minutes. And then we'll come around at the end and ask, uh, you can ask them some questions. What will The way this will work is we'll start uh, first talking about America's national defense strategy and its requirements with Dr. Frank Hoffman. Then Mr. Dean Chang is going to talk about and examine our two primary strategic competitors, Russia and China. And then finally, Mr. Todd Harrison will take us through the resourcing picture that might be available to fund that national defense. And we are really so fortunate uh, to have these three gentlemen with us. I will tell you that uh, within Washington, D.C., on any given day, there is a ton of stuff published on national defense. And frankly, 80 to 90 percent of it is suitable for wrapping fish. And But... And so if you're trying to keep up with things in this world, you have to make judicious choices about what you're going to read and what you're not going to read. There are maybe five or six people that when I see their byline, I read it. No matter, I give them the, the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to read that entire article. Three of those people are on our panel today. And so I think we are so fortunate to have this group. For, uh, on my left, Dr. Frank Hoffman is a distinguished research fellow at the Center for Strategic Research at the National Defense University. Washington, D.C. He served as an active Marine officer from 1978 to 1986, shifted to the Marine Corps Reserve, and retired in 2001 as a lieutenant colonel. Subsequent positions included service as an events civilian in key strategy roles. He paid, played a large role in preparing the 2017 National Defense Strategy while supporting the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and he has written extensively on warfare and strategy. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and holds master's degrees from George Mason and the Naval War College and earned a Ph.D. from King's College in London. To his left, Mr. Dean Chang, Heritage's Senior Research Fellow in the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. Mr. Chang is a recognized expert in Chinese military and space capability, has written widely on that topic, and is in great demand as a speaker on that subject. He worked previously as a senior analyst for SAIC, the Center for Neighbor Analysis, and, the Con and Congress's Office of Technology Assessment. He holds a bachelor's degree from Princeton. And finally, to his left, Mr. Todd Harrison, Director of the Defense Budget Analysis and Aerospace Security Project and Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mr. Harrison is a recognized expert on the defense budget and defense aerospace issues. He has published numerous authoritative studies and reports on those subjects and is a frequent contributor to print and broadcast media, again, on those topics. He served as a captain in the Air Force Reserve and received bachelor's and master's degrees from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. A great group. Uh, they're going to take questions at the end, so, but in the, in the meanwhile, please welcome the panel. Sir, if you could uh, lead us off, please. All right. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. Uh, glad to see some old friends in, uh, in the audience. Most of them have hair grayer than mine. Good to see that. Uh, very glad to be on the panel. Very glad to be here for the rollout of the index. I have been previously a participant in the index 
Uh, I can honestly attest that uh, the 2017 index uh, influenced uh, some of the writing of the national defense strategy that came out in January of 2018. And I can also say honestly that I used it in the last month uh, in the classroom at National Defense University. Uh, the, uh, the executive summary is very useful to us, so uh, very glad to be here. Uh, with respect to the national defense strategy and uh, some themes and some uh, uh, implications perhaps, uh, hopefully maybe even some touch points that will rub up against uh, some comments that Dakota made earlier. You know, this is a, a different defense strategy in the past, and not just because it's a new administration, and not just because of the defense secretary came into the building with 40 years of prior experience and just a few opinions about how, just a few mild opinions about how some things could be adjusted. Uh, we, we did the, the process differently than the past. We didn't have a lot of committees. We didn't have multiple committees and multiple levels of oversight. It was a small team that worked just for him in the way that an operational commander uh, normally works with a, a strategy or a planning team. A lot of interaction, a lot of discourse. Uh, I would like to have had more interaction and, and, and more guidance. I'd like to have some, the White House guidance. I'd like to have some congressional guidance. I'd like to have had more money earlier, um, but we still got through it all. But again, another part of the context that's different was the expectations from Congress. Uh, they were very dissatisfied with defense planning over the last 20 years, and that dissatisfaction grew over time and, and set up language in the NDA that we would do the strategy differently. They, they wanted and ended up prescribing a process that kind of described and prescribed uh, what they expected in the document, particularly with respect to clarity of threats, prioritization of threats, prioritization of missions, uh, and an acknowledgement of risk, things we were going to do and not do. Uh, that's different in the past. Uh, so it required kind of a rethink of how to go about the document. So it doesn't look like previous QDRs. It doesn't look like uh, most of the other planning documents we have. And we think we satisfy the Congress generally with the level of detail. And they author authorized us for operational security reasons to write a more classified document. So I imagine that many of you all have seen the 11-page summary that Mr. Mattis rolled out uh, in January. Uh, that's kind of an up-and-out document. It's unclassified. There's a 55-page document that's much more specific much more classified, really does call out some names, and really does make some clear priorities. And some of those priorities are hard. Some of the services won't agree with them, particularly some of the COCOMs won't, won't uh, necessarily agree with them uh, because we had to make some hard choices. You know, numbers do matter. Numbers like four, three, and one. Uh, the four trillion, that's our budget. The three trillion, that's our revenues. And the one trillion that we're going to borrow, that's the deficit. Numbers do matter. The $20 trillion economy, $20 trillion of debt, that's going to $30 trillion of debt. And with the new tax cuts, $33, $33 trillion. Numbers matter. In 2026, this country will pay $700 billion for defense, and we're going to pay about $725 billion on interest on the credit card in 2026, the end of the period that this strategy approaches. So numbers do matter. With respect to the uh, secure environment, I think everybody's aware of the, the summary. It's, it's about China and Russia as major peer competitors uh, with different characterizations of their capabilities, their geography, their mass. They're on different directions. One's a revisionist. One's a destabler, just a, a spoiler, and we characterize them that way. They're on different paths over time. The strategy accounts for them differently over time. It does account for the existence of Iran, North Korea, and violent extremism, but in different priorities than we've seen it in the past. Some people have you know, some issues with that. We do recognize a changing character of war. 
So some of the old metrics, some of the old force structure, some of the old CONOPs, some of the old ways we've measured capability in the past, things like the two-war construct, may have to adapt to that. Uh, some math does matter. Some new, new numbers also matter, though, too. We do acknowledge an eroding conventional edge. We've lost that over the last 15 years. Some of that's our fault. Some of that's just advances our opponents are making. But the net effect is the need to wake up and adapt to a, 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 new, a new age. We also believe that competition short of armed conflict, political warfare, hybrid warfare, gray zone, whatever you want to call it of the day, uh, in the alphabet soup uh, does matter, mostly as a shaping activity that undercuts our, our influence, undercuts our uh, political processes, undercuts our alliance cohesion uh, more than anything else overseas, and that's, that's very important. And there's another aspect I don't think has come up yet today because we're kind of focusing, I think, in a conventional mindset, uh, but the homeland is no longer a sanctuary. So when we do go to a war, there will be another war here that will be defending the homeland. And if you've read the president's strategy, that's the first vital interest and the first pillar of the strategy for the national security strategy. And that's a broader mission in terms of strategic deterrence, in terms of space, in terms of cyber, in terms of the homeland protecting the American people. And we have to account for that. The strategy demands it, and I think the American taxpayer is expecting that as well. So we might prefer the away games. Maybe we want to think about simultaneous two away games, uh, but there will always be other missions on our plate. We can discuss that in Q&A about what that looks like. Our gap analysis that we did for the strategy had four elements. Uh, the first one was we had the wrong mindset. We are thinking about too much about the last opponents. We need to get back into understanding what great power competition is about. It's a game we've not played for 25 years. The strategic muscles the models, the computer uh, aspects, and just the way the building thinks is, uh, is archaic now. We have to get that back and, and realign the strategic priorities. So the 1 plus 4 is more of a 2 plus 2 plus 1 in, in our minds. Uh, we have a reduced uh, credible deterrent overseas. We need a, That's our second gap. We need to, need to fix that. We have an eroding science and technology edge in, in new capabilities and disruptive capabilities. Technology is not all a bad thing if we keep it in balance and perspective, which is where I, I agree with Dakota. Uh, but also the high cost of our system, the overhead, the bureaucracy, the slowness, uh, is part of the gap analysis as well. We're losing generations of capability. We've lost some intellectual property. Uh, our opponents are, are gaining, haven't passed us quite yet, but gaining on that. And the final aspect is we have a declining network of allies and partners. Some of them have social issues, political discord. Some of them have demographic or economic challenges. Uh, we need, we need a, a stronger alliance and partner network. Um, and, and we need to actively cultivate that. General Mattis and General Dunford spent an inordinate amount of their time on that particular area. So our strategic approach that we came up with is uh, you'll not see this because it's in the classified document, but I brought some copies for the, for the young people. Uh, since I'm an instructor, I have to use PowerPoint. Uh, but it's a Venn diagram. If you know Mr. Madison, PowerPoint, you know, it was not an easy thing to sell. Uh, but it's in the classified document. So the first thing we, we talk about in the strategy is expanding the competitive space. So we're just not focusing on the military dimension, but that military dimension is also getting broader. So we've got to think about the high end that we've not thought about in a long time, protracted conflicts that begin at home and all the way to deployed across the ocean and to, and to fight and overseas. But we also have to participate in other dimensions of strategy. We have to participate in the diplomatic or enable the diplomatic. We have to fight in the information for the battle of the narratives. There's a technological dimension to strategy that's part of great power competition on the technological dimension, and we need to support our economy. 
Uh, sometimes that's just by access to markets and resources. Sometimes that's by enforcing sanctions. But mostly in our strategy, it's about protecting and harnessing the benefits of a 21st century innovation base. We don't talk about an old industrial base uh, in manufacturing or things. We talk about an innovation base. So, so much of our innovation in America comes from students, comes from labs, comes from garages, comes from small companies. So the last administration and this administration has been dedicated to reaching out to stimulating, harvesting, harnessing, and then protecting that, particularly so that it doesn't end up in somebody else's uh, uh, lab out in Asia someplace, as has been happening over the last couple of years. So we need to think about the broader competition, peacetime institutions. We need to outthink, outpartner, outinnovate, outinform, and, and then be prepared ultimately to outfight our opponents. The second theme, what Mr. Mattis calls the first line of effort, is building a more lethal force. The word lethality is in the classified document 26 times. Make some people in the Pentagon uh, get focused on that. Uh, I wouldn't overemphasize that. We're actually looking for a joint force that's both agile, can move between missions and places. Uh, it's resilient. It can take a hit and keep ticking or fight in contested environments with or without perfect communications. And it has to be lethal. It has to be able to impose costs. It has to be able to deter. It has to be able to punish somebody or at least put, put the threat of punishment in that, something we, we need to do at scale that we have not been doing. And then the next line of effort is the institutional reform piece. You know, we're, Again, we're too slow, too expensive, too exquisite, uh, in terms of generating new capabilities for the future. If we're on a 14-year cycle and we continue to replace $4 billion units like an aircraft carrier with a $14 billion aircraft carrier, I saw some, some, some data in Dakota's thing. We're replacing 24,000 trucks with 9,000 new trucks. Um, and the reason that we're only replacing with 9,000 is because they cost nearly $400,000 a piece to replace the $150,000 truck that used to replace the $50,000 Jeep that I might have drove in 2001. We're killing ourselves at, at this thing. Overhead, bureaucracy, minimizing risk, 14-year cycle. We're not putting the kit in the hands of our warriors at a reasonable cost and a reasonable time so they can compete with competitors. So we need to accelerate the cycle of innovation between the joint force and the, uh, and the overhead. We also need to get the overhead down. The senator made some comments, you know, what we owe the American taxpayer in terms of accountability. So auditing, accounting for the money that we're spending, and, and getting things right. We, we need to do that. And then this... Third line of effort, the final line of effort, we need a stronger alliance and partner network. We need the right friends sharing burdens equitably, uh, reciprocally with us, but we also need to help them. So some of this reform, some of this lower uh, equipment that should be shared, foreign military sales, greater security cooperation, a greater degree of interoperability, and not just because plugs that wire into each other, a degree of force planning, uh, collaboration, integrated design, us buying some of their things, us selling things when we have better kit at a good price. Um, we, we should be doing more of that. So, again, this synergy of thinking differently, buying these lethal capabilities, buying them faster uh, with more innovation in a greater time period and sharing them with our allies and partners should give us a greater deterrent in the right neighborhoods against the two competitors that we need to be mostly concerned about. And that synergy should be able to provide uh, a, a mindset and a capability that focuses our strengths against our competitors' weaknesses and giving us a greater deterrence and a more stable world. And with that, I'll get off the platform. Thank Dr. you. Dr. Hoffman, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Dean Cheng, sir, over to you.
how do you follow up on something like that? <clears throat> so, um, so I was asked to talk a little bit about the threats, um, in particular Russia and China. Um, one of the interesting things that uh, this year's review reflects is the growing consensus within the broad spectrum of analysts about the kinds of threats that confront us. Dr. Hoffman obviously talked just now about the national defense strategy and the refocus back on Russia and China, and it does mark the return of major nation-state adversaries and peer competitors. And one of the uh, striking things about this, when we look at both of these countries, is the comprehensiveness of the threat. This is not an adversary that is building a Navy that will challenge the U.S. Navy, or a space force that will challenge the now you know, newly born embryonic U.S. space force. This is a pair of countries that each fields a full array of capabilities, whether it's in outer space, whether it's in cyberspace, whether it's in the more traditional land, sea, and air domains. Um, and part of the problem here is they're two different countries. So the ability to counter China does not necessarily lead to capabilities that are suitable for countering Russia. Um, one is a land power par excellence. The other, China, is a continental power historically that now depends upon the seas and increasingly has moved out to sea. And that's a very different entity. It's something we haven't seen before. Um, it also means that our strategic community needs to get back to strategic thinking. And what is strategy, really, but reconciling means to ends. And one of the most important things, um, and I believe the senator mentioned this, is the need to name names. We do need to say who, uh, who are threats, and conversely, are Russia and China actually threats, or at least peer competitors and adversaries. That was, those were phrases that we tended to try to avoid for much of the past decade, and not necessarily to our benefit. Um, the complexity of the overall threat environment is striking. Um, when we look at both Russia and China together, there are new sources of threats that we haven't really seen before. The land, sea, and air domains aircraft, submarines, etc. Those are things that, to some extent, we're familiar with. The technology has evolved, the capabilities have improved, but ships still float, airplanes still fly. But hybrid warfare, for example, I think you helped found that term. Mr. Mr. Mattis did. Ah, okay. okay. If, you're, um, if you're a consultant, your client always came up with the answer. <laughs> of course. Uh, highlights he did. that we have seen an interesting shift from a focus on kinetic conflict to a broader set of conflict encompassing all the elements of national power and therefore expanding national vulnerabilities. You fight conflicts today not just with the traditional means of war, artillery, aircraft, and ships, but increasingly through video, through news stories, through social media. That's a very different kind of conception, but it's something that our Russian and Chinese counterparts have embraced, in part because of the way that they are ruled, and therefore the incorporation and integration of propaganda into all of the aspects of national policy. Outer space is now a major 
potential battlefield. And this is fundamentally different from the, coast, from the Cold War and even the post-Cold War period. During the Cold War, we and the Soviets both had space capabilities, but we pretty much uh, recognized that national technical means should be off-limits and improve strategic stability. Uh, for the most part, nobody actively tried to interfere with information collection. Certainly, you didn't generally have uh, shooting at each other's satellites. In the post-Cold War environment, whether it was Iraq, uh, the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq again, um, Syria, none of these countries fielded their own space capabilities. So the U.S. and its allies could basically enjoy beyond supreme, I mean, just absolute untrammeled access to space and therefore the information that was derived from there. Both Russia and China are space powers in their own right and therefore pose inherently a challenge to our ability to use the outer space domain. And we see this already in peacetime. Russia, for example, has been accused by France of parking a satellite uh, near one of their more sensitive communication systems out of geosynchronous uh, orbit. Uh, that's some of the most valuable real estate, about 24,000 miles from Earth. That's where a satellite, if placed, basically stays over the same spot on Earth. Very helpful for communications, useful for certain other information-gathering techniques. Previously, the, Ch the Russians had parked a... Um, similar type satellite between two U.S. geosynchronous satellites. Again, what was the purpose of it out there? Maybe it was just sort of hanging out, but I think most folks would say that it was probably a little uh, less uh, benign. China, of course, in 2007 tested an anti-satellite weapon uh, worst debris generating incident in space history. Since then, they have tested weapons that are designed uh, to go all the way out to geosynchronous and kill things there. Um, cyber. Cyber is not a potential battlefield. It is a current battlefield. Uh, those of you who are news junkies, I suspect there's a couple of you in the audience here, uh, are undoubtedly aware that uh, today's breaking headline about China uh, was that apparently uh, microchips supplied by the Chinese to Apple, to Microsoft, to various other companies used by Facebook came with hardware that have been tampered with and potentially provides a backdoor. And the uh, Bloomberg uh, Businessweek uh, columnists indicate that this was done by war, certainly with the cooperation of the People's Liberation Army. Um, this has long been theorized in the open literature, but now apparently we have actual evidence. Um, even before this, uh, just in the last year or so, we had the WannaCry incident, um, and the NotPetya incident, uh, the former attributed to North Korea, NotPetya attributed to Russia. And this highlights, too, the evolving nature of the cyber threat. We have gone beyond DDoS, distributed denial of service, where basically you can't get through to your website. Now we are talking about the actual destruction of computers and the exploitation of ransomware um, to hold your data is still present. It's just you can't get to it until you pay the perpetrator some amount of money um, to get your data back or to get access to your data back. Um, this is, again, very different from how we have often thought about uh, cyber threats. Um, and considering that cyber threats, unlike Hollywood's version, you don't just sit there at your keyboard, clack a few keys, and all of a sudden you're crashing the alien's entire information network a la Independence Day. Um, cyber takes months or years which means that these programs were in development 
four years and took an, a long time to insert, to infiltrate, to infect. And that uh, is also reflected in the rise of other new technologies. For example, um, the rise of drones so and artificial intelligence and a variety of other new cutting-edge technologies. Will they be game changers? I think the jury is still out. Uh, in the area of aerial drones, unmanned aerial vehicles, for example, we have yet to see them operate in a high-intensity air defense environment, SAMs, interceptors, etc. But they certainly are forcing people to start rethinking. And if we are going to worry about homeland security, as an example, a couple of years ago there was a photograph taken from Norfolk of nine U.S. aircraft carriers and big deck assault ships all tied up at the piers uh, at Norfolk. Some were in for repair, some were refueling, some were simply um, uh, turning around. But I will be honest, my immediate impression was Battleship Row at about 6 in the morning on December 7th. Beautiful, impressive, a lovely display of American power, and horrifically vulnerable. Vulnerable to what? Well, there were an awful lot of, of vehicles and people and other things on those decks that if you had drones going overhead, simply dropping hand grenades, as we have seen in Syria and elsewhere, um, by actors who are far less capable than Russia or China. Uh, one could imagine a lot of havoc, if nothing else. And this goes to the final point that I want to bring up, which is new threats actually reflect new targets. Um, war we've sort of gotten used to the idea that war should be between militaries. People in uniform take on people in uniform. But what Ukraine, Crimea, the South China Sea, Syria, etc. reflects is the return of targeting your adversary's economy and population, including their infrastructure of networks. Not necessarily through kinetic means, although kinetic still obviously plays a role, but also through things like influence operations, through cyber targeting, through espionage. There is a great irony here. The U.S. military is increasingly told to limit collateral damage beyond military targets. And when non-military targets are hit, even as an accident, the absolute firestorm that erupts, I would point to the example of the hospital in Kunduz, uh, Afghanistan that was hit, um, is just enormous. Our adversaries, however, as they have demonstrated through their actions, increasingly threaten to expand collateral damage beyond military targets. So let me conclude by just noting, we see the return, therefore, of nation-state as focus, but not necessarily of traditional warfare as the mean and mode of conflict. Let me also just note, um, so I'm the China analyst here at Heritage, um, so at least the mistakes in the China section are my responsibility. Um, the China section is, frankly, a, a bit easier to write in part because DOD is required by the FY2000 National Defense Authorization Act to produce an annual report on China's military and security activities and capabilities. And this provides an excellent, useful supplement to the Worldwide Threat Assessment and the IISS report. It's authoritative, it's regular, 
hopefully has a consistent set of metrics. It covers a wide range of capabilities, and it is the official U.S. government position. Um, Russia, Iran, certainly um, al-Qaeda and ISIS, there's no equivalent to that. And I guess um, in that regard, uh, it might be ho- to be hoped that perhaps Russia, at least, as the other major peer competitor, um, might merit in the future a comparable regular series of reports. Thank you very much. Dean, thank you very much. So, Todd, over to you, please. All right. Uh, well, I think Tom and Dakota invited me on the panel uh, to offer a dose of uh, budgetary reality. Uh, and so I will do my best to throw a wet blanket on everything that's been said so far. Um, you know, if you if you step back for a second and look at where we are in terms of defense spending, uh, it's quite remarkable. Uh, the defense budget for FY19, $716 billion total for national defense, including war-related funding. $716 billion. You adjust for inflation, that's more than we spent at the peak of the Reagan buildup in the Cold War. Uh, this is a remarkable level of defense spending, uh, except when you look at some of the charts uh, that were shown uh, before and a lot of the, the detail that's in the military uh, uh, index. You look at the size of the force, it's nowhere near where we were at the peak of the Cold War. Uh, Our Air Force is smaller, our Navy is smaller, our land forces are smaller, uh, and, you know, it it seems incongruous uh, with where the budget is going. Now, if you go back further in time, you see that, you know, throughout U.S. history, the defense budget has been highly cyclic. Uh, And since the end of World War II, we've had four complete cycles in the defense budget. Um, And you look at the Korean War cycle, the budget goes up very quickly. Uh, we grow the force rapidly, uh, the war comes to an end, budget comes down, size of the force goes back down. Uh, same thing happens in Vietnam. Uh, you get to the, the 1980s, and we have a big buildup in defense spending. That wasn't primarily a buildup in the size of the force, although you know certain components did grow, like the Navy especially. Um, it was mainly a modernization buildup. We bought a lot of new equipment in the 1980s. Uh, but then at the end of the Cold War, uh, throughout that drawdown, we downsized significantly, even though we didn't grow that much uh, during the 80s buildup. Uh, so we shrank to a size of about 1.4 million in active duty and strength. And you know, after 9-11, a uh, big increase in defense spending, uh, not just in war-related funding, uh, but a huge increase in the base budget as well. And what you see is that the size of the military didn't really grow. Uh, We stayed pretty much flat. Now, some parts of the force, the Army and the Marine Corps, they added about 100,000 troops in the mid-2000s. They've since rolled that back, taken those forces out. Uh, The Navy and the Air Force throughout the 2000s were downsizing. They're getting smaller over time. And so that brings us to where we are today, where we've got a budget that's at a relatively high level uh, by historical standards, but a force uh, that's the smallest it's been since the end of World War II. So what gives? Uh, you know, we talk about all the challenges that the military is facing, need to modernize, the need to increase capacity of the force, need to rebuild and maintain readiness. Um, what's going on? Why aren't we able to do that with the budget we have today? Well, there's several factors. I wish there was one easy answer to this. Um, you know, if there is, I guess you could sum it up as saying there's a, you know, a diminishing value of defense dollars. 
the value of our defense dollars, what we can buy uh, with our defense budget, uh, has been eroded over time. And so there's three main areas uh, that I look at uh, that, that can help explain that. So first is personnel cost. Our people have gotten much more expensive. Uh, you look at the growth in personnel costs on a per-service member basis um, over the past 20 years or so. It's been growing at a rate of about 2 or 3% a year above inflation. So if you just want to maintain the same size and strength we have today, your personnel accounts are going to need to grow 2 or 3% above inflation year after year. Now, why are those costs growing faster than inflation? Part of it has been pay raises, um, higher pay raises throughout the 2000s. Uh, but a bigger part of it is healthcare-related expenses. So Congress added a lot of new healthcare benefits uh, uh, in 2001, uh, expanded healthcare benefits, uh, and we've got more and more military retirees are choosing to stay in the military healthcare system. Uh, and so the military and the defense budget is picking up those costs. Uh, you know, Congress has made some reforms in recent years since about 2012. Congress has been, um, you know, tweaking the system uh, to help reduce those costs, uh, and it has stabilized somewhat. The problem is, if you want to keep those costs stable in the future, you're going to have to keep enacting reforms. If we take our attention off of this uh, and don't pay attention to these health care costs, they will start growing again, uh, and we're going to see our personnel costs uh, start growing again. Um, the next major element, uh, you know, understanding why our defense dollars are, are eroding in value, uh, is looking at our operation and maintenance accounts. Um, it is costing more and more uh, just to fund the training and maintenance upkeep of our forces every year. If you look at it over time, and this is not a new trend either, this has been going on since the 1950s. Uh, if you look at O&M uh, costs on a per-person basis, per-in-strength basis in the active duty force, it grows at about 25 to 3% above inflation year after year after year. So again, if you want to just maintain the same size force we have today, your O&M budget needs to grow at about 25 to 3% above inflation every year just to maintain where we are, not improving capabilities, not rebuilding readiness, not growing the force, just staying where we are. Um, the, if you dig a little deeper in that, uh, you know, some of the statistics kind of jump out at me. Uh, the Navy has been talking about, you know, you know, readiness of their forces and, you know, shortfalls in training and maintenance. Um, and some have tried to blame this on the budget. Uh, but you look at what we're spending today, uh, on ship operations. So that's a subset of Navy O&M. If you just look at the ship operations budget on a per ship basis, it's double what it was 20 years ago. That's adjusting for inflation. So 100% increase above inflation over 20 years on the cost of ship operations per ship. We see even larger increases uh, if you look at the cost of land force operations and the Army's budget on a per-soldier basis. It's more than double over the past 20 years. And the same is true for the Air Force. Uh, the cost of aircraft operations, uh, I believe it's over 150% increase uh, in the last 20 years. So our equipment, our forces, are just costing much, much more to operate and maintain. And this is a trend that's likely to continue because, as Dakota talked about earlier, when you've got old equipment, uh, you know, like an old car, it costs more to operate and maintain year after year. Uh, and we've got a lot of old equipment, a lot of equipment that dates back to the 1980s when we had the, the first modernization bow wave. Uh, but 
it's not just a, a matter of replacing that equipment with new equipment because almost every new generation of weapon system that we buy costs even more to operate and maintain than the systems, the legacy systems it's replacing. Uh, so this is not something that's going to be easy to pull out of. Uh, again, you know, if, if you want to bet on something continuing, I would bet on uh, our O&M costs uh, per unit of force structure are going to continue to grow above inflation, about 2.5-3% a year. Uh, the final area is when you look at our acquisition budget. Uh, and so you know, acquisition budget is probably the m most highly cyclic part uh, of the overall defense budget and procurement in particular. Uh, we see huge increases and decreases in procurement. Uh, if you look back over this most recent uh, budget cycle uh, since 9-11 uh, through, well, now we're already on, on an upturn again in a new budget cycle, uh, but you look at the 2000s budget cycle and you see that procurement spending, it went up, it increased significantly, uh, but you dig a little deeper and you realize that, that that increase in procurement over that time was almost entirely driven by war-related procurements. And you look even deeper at that, and these are real war-related procurements. It's not just stuff that DOD stuck into OCO funding to get around the budget caps. We're talking, you know, buying MRAPs, the mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles. A lot of money spent on that. Buying drones, uh, you know, the MQ-1s, MQ-9s, uh, you know, buying missiles and munitions, things that got used up. Uh, in operations in Iraq and Afghanistan that we don't actually, for the most part, have it in our force structure any longer. Uh, so, you know, we spent a lot on procurement in the 2000s. We just don't have a lot to show for it right now. We didn't modernize our force for the most part. So what we have is a lot of modernization needs that have been pushed out into the future, into the 2020s. So there's a big bill coming due. Uh, and again, that links back to our O&M costs because we've got all this old equipment. It's costing more to maintain. we got this huge bill in front of us to modernize the force. Uh, how is this all going to come together? Well, you know, I look at the FY19 budget request and the FIDEP, the five-year plan that comes with that request. It's basically flat. Uh, slight growth uh, above inflation, but basically flat over the next five years. So that's the baseline what the Pentagon is planning for. That's the baseline of the budget that came out with the National Defense Strategy. And I look at that and I say, uh, as high as the budget is right now, a flat budget means that we're going to have to gradually downsize the force over time and defer a lot of these modernization programs. That's the fiscal reality. Um, and and what you hear, though, from the services is something very different. What you hear is the Navy talking about a target of 355 ships. Um, you know, maybe it doesn't matter what kind of ships. You know, if we could get a bunch of frigates, we could get to 355. But I assume they probably don't want all frigates. Uh, but Navy's got their target of 355 ships. Uh, the Air Force has now got their target of 386 squadrons. Uh, you know, you could just divide up a lot of our squadrons, uh, you know, and get to 386 pretty quickly. I assume, though, that's not what they meant. Um, you know, and the Army, I'm waiting for next week at the AUSA conference. Uh, they've got to come out with a single number, a single metric uh, to rival. Yeah, yeah, 550, you think that'll be it? <laughs> so 550. And they can make coffee mugs and hats and stuff that go with it. And 550 is better than 386 and 355, so they'll win. Um, but, you know, all the, all the services have got their targets to grow the force structure, 
Um, and I'm scratching my head saying, but wait, wait, you said you also needed to be rebuild readiness and you also said you needed to modernize, right? And you've got all these great modernization programs that are just getting into the pipeline right now. Their peak years of funding for many of them are going to be in the mid 2020s, just outside the five year projection conveniently. Uh, and so you've got all this stuff coming. Uh, and now you say what well, you want to grow the force on top of it. I don't understand how you're going to pay for it in a flat budget. Uh, and a flat budget, you know, among, you know, growing capacity, growing capability, rebuilding readiness, at best you might be able to do one of those, probably none. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I, what I'm waiting for, what I'm looking for in the FY20 budget request uh, is how are they going to reconcile all of this? Are we going to see the budget grow significantly? Like Secretary Mattis has talked about in the past, he wants 3 to 5% growth above inflation. Okay, I, I buy the you know that number the, to get what is talked about in the national defense strategy uh, and what's been talked about here today. Um, but is he going to get OMB to agree to that? <laughs> and is he going to get Congress to agree to that? Remember, we have budget caps for two more years in FY20 and 21. Uh, and so Congress has got to push through a budget deal to allow it anywhere close to this level of spending. Um, so there, there are a lot of challenges here. And then the, the broader context of it, as Frank alluded to before, you know, we've got a trillion dollar deficit in our budget already. Uh, we got $20 trillion in debt on the books and it's growing. Uh, we just passed a bunch of tax cuts that are reducing revenue, going to make our deficit worse. We've got an aging population, a baby boomer generation that's moving into retirement. Uh, we know the Social Security cost and the Medicare cost are going to balloon in the 2020s. Uh, you know, that's a demographic certainty. So with all these challenges, I'm just not sure how we do any of this, quite frankly. Uh, you know, and so I guess I'll stop there. That's enough wet blanket for now. <laughs> I was hoping there was going to be a happy ending. <laughs> there, is, there, is, there is. Okay. Let's give uh, Mr. Harrison a round of applause. Oh, that was wonderful, in, in, despite that way it ended there. I, uh, <laughs> but uh, we have some time for questions, ladies and gentlemen. So I'd ask you uh, to raise your hand. We'll bring a microphone to you so that our, our live streaming audience can hear your question as well and identify yourself and any affiliation that you might have. Okay. Are you heading to somebody already? Oh, okay. Sorry, we got somebody. Thank here. you very much. Uh, hello, Sandra Irwin with Space News. Um, I wanted to ask Todd, uh, to your point about the flat budget and other priorities, um, I know you have been looking into the Space Force uh, proposals and the cost estimates, and you believe that what the Air Force put out is too high. I know that you support a Space Force, but obviously you think that it should be cheaper. Have you gotten any closer to an, an, a cost estimate that you think is reasonable that could be accommodated in, with all these other priorities in the DOD budget? Thanks. Sure. So the vast majority of the cost of a Space Force as a separate service and military department, um, we already have in the budget because we already have Space Forces uh, in the Air Force, the Navy, the Army, uh, and the intelligence agencies. Uh, so the, what you would do in creating a Space Force is all of that would move over and all the personnel, the organizations, the infrastructure, the bases that already exist that do this job, this is just a reorganization that would all move into this new department. Now, you would need to add 
some headquarters and overhead layer on top of that. Um, and the, the commentary that I published yesterday about why I think we need a Space Force, uh, I made the comparison to the Coast Guard, uh, not that the way the Space Force would operate would be anywhere close to the way the, uh, the Coast Guard operates, but in terms of size, um, the Coast Guard has about 50,000 total personnel, uh, including civilians. Um, that's pretty close to about what we have in terms of our Space Forces today, spread across uh, the services and intel uh, agencies, uh, about 30,000 in Air Force Space Command, uh, you know, and, and bits and pieces in the, in the other services and, and intel agencies. So about 50,000 is probably a good number. Uh, so what kind of headquarters staff do you need to add on top of an organization, a service? It's about 50,000 people. Well, for the Coast Guard, uh, they have about 2,600 people uh, in their headquarters. Um, so, you know, that's about 5%. Uh, of the workforce as your headquarters staff, which seems pretty reasonable. Uh, so I think something along uh, along the lines of that. Uh, you run the numbers on that, and over the fight up over a five-year period, that uh, those additional personnel cost you about <clears throat> $2.5 billion. Um, let's round it up to three, right? Um, now, the Air Force has said it's going to cost like $13 billion because uh, they want to add 13,000 people. Uh, to do those functions, and they want to add a billion-dollar new building uh, for Space Command in there. Um, so, yeah, if you want to go big, sure. Uh, um, Thirteen, but, but let's put this in context, though. Thirteen billion over five years. You just look at our projection right now of the flat defense budget over five years. It's about three and a half trillion dollars. <laughs> So out of three and a half trillion dollars, so for those of you who aren't, you know, math experts, uh, it's, that's 3,500 billion over five years. You're talking three billion or maybe at most 13 billion, uh, out of that 3,500 billion. Um, so yeah, you know, is that really gonna change uh, the game in terms of the budget? Not really. Um, you know, and especially when we're talking about, as Dean said before, we are facing some uh, near-peer competitors who have already reorganized their space forces. Both China and Russia reorganized their space forces back in 2015. They have given every indication they're taking this domain seriously. Uh, they see the vulnerabilities and how uh, poorly protected many of our satellite systems are, how slow we are to respond to threats. Um, this is, you know, going to be a major war fighting domain, uh, in, you know, the, the next major war that we have. Uh, and so, you know, is it worth it, uh, to invest in this, to do the, go through the disruption, uh, and everything right now so that we are prepared, uh, if that comes in the future? I think it is. Good. Any, uh, any further questions? I want to get some budget optimism in. Ah, okay. I'll get you next. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, Todd, really enjoyed your words. Uh, the fiscal environment right now is hard. Uh, if you look at what the Secretary of the Air Force mentioned about the growth and, and the, the total number of squadrons, you're talking about 20-plus uh, uh, modern aircraft squadrons coming in. And she, in, in personal discussions, has said it's all fifth-generation KC-46, B-21 types of uh, weapons. So huge with regard to cost potential. Uh, but coming back to the strategy that this is all based on, and she's trying to measure up to, uh, I'll come back to uh, Frank and, and, and your discussion. 431 numbers really do matter. Um, in developing the strategy, would you say that uh, the strategy was resource constrained, uh, resource informed, 
or resource unlimited. Maybe you could just give us some uh, thoughts on how that swirling thought process ended up with the strategy we have. We we made some estimates about deficiencies in the gaps. Um, We did take a look at Mr. Uh, Mattis's and General Dunford's pre-strategy testimonies about the 3 to 5 percent, looked at the economy, measured out what we thought was uh, needed to be done and costed it out. Uh, the strategy uh, is ambitious. It required at least a 10% increase. Uh, it, when we allocated that and, and applied it to strategy, the force didn't grow enough. Uh, Congress and the White House wanted to see more capacity. We were a capability-based strategy. Uh, and then the president and OMB you know, matched the delta in the interaction between the secretary and the White House and the development of the strategy which all came kind of late in the game after services were done their budgets, after they were done their palms. This is kind of the November-December fight that, that always goes on. So we get this catastrophic you know, kind of success. We basically got more than a 10% increase in one year. We didn't get 3 to 5% over 5. Didn't get a you know, build, build programmatically over time, uh, focus on things. We get this kind of catastrophic success of trying to figure out how to spend $60 billion to $80 billion halfway through the year of a budget year. I almost wish we could buy a, a certificate of deposit for about 20 or $25 billion and give it to the Air Force or give it to somebody else about two years from now when it could be programmatically applied to future capabilities. But we are $400 billion behind on the Delta thanks to sequestration. There are very dry sponges and spare parts, readiness accounts, uh, things we haven't done over four or five years. So that money can be intelligently spent, but it's hard to do it in, in half a year. So uh, the context you know, for the flat budget, it's okay, like going back to the Reagan order, when you get this big increase and it's flat, if you can use it intelligently and you can get at reforms and you can cover the cost of inflation with reforms and do anything smarter than we've done in the past. So we've got, we've got the level we think we need to execute the strategy, uh, but it will require the building, the acquisition community, the service secretaries uh, to jump on with some degree of urgency changes in the way we do business. And, and, and Congress abetting that kind of progress rather than restricting things and not helping the service chiefs with authorities uh, to do things smarter and smarter over time. So we're, I can live with five years at the level we have, and, and it can also maybe eventually you know, get rid of some of the OCO things and then balance things off. But I'm not optimistic that it can be done. I'm sort of uh, agreeing with Todd. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. But the resources are there. Uh, they're not going to be there forever. You know, because of because of the macroeconomic issues. So we took that in account. We measured it out. We, I think we ended up more than we expected to get. <laughs> Putting out there, even if we have one of the strongest militaries in the world, we have the co- costliest military in the world. And I'm just trying to think about, you know, uh, with with China being what it is, four times our size and being around 20 times as long as us that can, in the future is uh, getting together and, and internationalizing the defense base and getting together with other similar democracies to just to make sure that democracy can hold its own in the 21st century and doesn't try to dominate the world but just can get to hold its own and ending by American type provisions and getting together you know, with our allies, you know, if we're going to have our military presence on the soil of our allies, that part of that is maybe we get to incorporate their industry 
along with ours and and um, you know inter internationalizing the defense space, so we're just not going it alone. You know that that democracy's survival may be at stake if we just try to uh, go alone and not to get together with other like-minded democracies like South Korea, Italy, Taiwan, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and and also in ending the Buy American requirements, which could increase the cost. You know, you know what I'm saying. So, and also streamlining how we do business. Uh, for example, in the Air Force, you know, I was pressured by my bosses to move a project along when it's being delayed at higher head, uh, headquarters for approval, and yet you hire somebody at the higher headquarters approve. You know, hiring somebody to delay that same project in in the organization, the Air Force. And trying to end that charade, and you know, try, you know, so trying to make things more efficient, so we don't go broke, you know, upholding democracy like you seem to be doing now. That's, I'm just, you know, just putting out. I, I think, think you raised some good points, Frank. Do you want to take a? No, that's that's so very consistent with the strategy uh, about making a two-way street. You know, if, if if Norway can make a great missile and we can license it and buy it, we ought to do smart things like that. Uh, we, we need to be more collaborative and force design. I think we've already lowered the rate, a percentage point or something, on the security cooperation charges and things. So. Uh, we also need the technology control protections, you know, when we do things with our allies, because that's that is what some of our opponents are going after. But that's part of the broader competitive space of understanding you, you're competing for partners, you're competing for influence about against somebody who's a little more autocratic, a little more nefarious about how they go about doing that. So that's uh, accounted for in the strategy and sort of the, what I call interoperability between the reform and the allied partners. Mr. Mattis is very big on, uh, he's been involved in about three different conflicts and he's just never never fought alone. Um, he's always had allies and partners with us. And I, I think going alone is, is going to lose uh, over the long term and we need to account for that. So you're, you're spot on, sir. Great, okay, other questions? Yes, sir, over there. Where's Hi. The, is that the C-Lift question again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Will Thatcher. I'm an intern here at Heritage. I have a question for Dean Chang. Uh, how does the U.S. compare to Russia and China when it comes to employing and fielding uh, combat forces? Do we face similar challenges, or are there any similarities at all? Thanks. Um, so my focus here is on China, so I'm going to mostly focus my answer on China. Um, so one of the fundamental differences is that um, we are a global military. Uh, we have bases around the world. We operate around the world. Um, we operate with allies around the world. Uh, that is part and parcel of what we do. Um, for China, uh, they are a mostly uh, still operating at home. Their most extended overseas activity is, I think, now in its 27th rotation. It's a three-ship task force that operates off the Gulf of Aden. Uh, they do not have a global network of bases. They opened up their first military base in Djibouti uh, late last year. So there's a whole lot of things that we just do at this point as second nature. Um, if you transfer a squadron of aircraft from the continental United States to South Korea, whose budget does that come out of? By budget, I mean everything from the fuel to the pilots to the food, their salary – all of that sort of thing. This is second nature at this point for the U.S. Air Force, maintaining bookkeeping, which if, you know, all of the, all of the various conversations up here should highlight budgets matter. Uh, if you're the Chinese military, this is something very new for you. Who is responsible for if a ship transfers from one fleet to another? Who's responsible for things like fuel? Uh, 
Then the second aspect of this, on top of that, is that we are very combat experienced. For better or worse, this nation has been at war pretty continuously since 1989, I'm sorry, since 1990. And that, too, has a lot of implications. Everything from how we deal with casualties to practicing logistics for real, not just as an exercise, to um, understanding that, uh, what was it? Uh, Murphy's Laws of War. Uh, Murphy was an optimist. Yeah, Murphy, of course, was everything, anything that can go wrong will, and that's only in peacetime. Uh, so, um, if you're the Chinese, you haven't fought a war since 1979. That's a very different context of looking at the world, at how your military will operate, how, what, you, what do you practice and what do you base it on? Uh, with the Russians, um, I'm not a Russia expert, so please take everything I'm about to say with a suitable grain of salt. I think the large industrial-sized canister would be useful here. Um, the, the Russians, unlike the Chinese, do have combat experience. Uh, they have combat experience in Chechnya, both catastrophic and not so catastrophic. They've fought in Georgia. They have fought in uh, Ukraine. Um, okay, maybe it was little green men, but uh, I think it's safe to say that they have certainly derived lessons from that um, and, oh yes, and the Wagner group in Syria, they definitely learned probably some, the survivors probably learned some lessons from that one. Um, so what folks like uh, General Robert Scales and others have noted, however, is that Russia's military today is not the military of Yeltsin. This is a military that can schwack a Ukrainian battalion and render it combat ineffective. Um, this is a very different military than I think what we got used to in the 1990s. Uh, their equipment is um, slowly modernizing. They talk about huge defense acquisitions. You know, I, I wonder what your counterpart, Todd, is like in Russia. <laughs> I suspect he may be counting trees in Siberia if he's as honest as you are. Um, but uh, the thing is that you know, they, they have these giant acquisition programs, and then you take a look at the actual budget numbers, and it's very small. But in some areas, uh, mortars, small arms, things like that, they field weapons that are absolutely world-class and will punch through the body armor of an American soldier. Um, now, whether or not the new T-14 Armata is the same kind of capability as, you know, the wonder tank that the T-90 was supposed to be in the 1990s, less clear. But in certain key salient areas, space, information warfare, psychological operations, both the Chinese and the Russians have, are, I would suggest, very comparable to us for the simple reason that in each of these areas, it's not really different between peacetime and wartime. Whereas, you know, carrier operations, combat operations, things like that, that's a little bit different, um, your day-to-day -day peacetime activity than your wartime. That was, that was wonderful. Okay. Further questions? Yeah, now, we're, now people are oh, warming up. Okay. Sir, in the front it's here, please. Here, kinda, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Peter Mike Nilsson, Defense Council at Danish Embassy. Um, thank you for, for great presentations. Um, clearly a challenge ahead, one could uh, say, with both uh, Frank's presentation, Todd's, and also uh, Dean's. Um, so how will this pan out? Uh, a little bit of a question uh, to you. Uh, is the, the way to go in the future to think about more sort of how do we address Russia and China asymmetrically in a way, try to 
force the same medicine that they have been forcing on on the U.S. Uh, for some time. Um, sort of try to look into cheaper options, um, else uh, a budget might not come in to fulfill the ambitions which are in the plans. It's a great question. Uh, anybody want to take a stab at it, Frank? Well, the 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 gist of our thinking on this is to think competitively. Um, cannot afford uh, capabilities, capacity, and readiness for all things in all places. So we have to prioritize. We prioritize by naming competitors, and we have to look at the domains in which uh, our opponents have vulnerabilities. Uh, you can call that asymmetric. It may be uh, still symmetric if that's where a vulnerability applies. But in certain domains, or in certain uh, dimensions of the strategy, uh, we should be targeting our capabilities in a, as focused a means as possible against areas in which we can sustain an enduring competitive advantage over time. Uh, so that doesn't mean trying to take on everybody in the air, on land, under sea, on the surface, uh, as, as much as people seem to be with some of the numbers they're throwing around. Uh, that's, that should be the gist of the thinking. So I, we, we call it more of a competitive strategy, but it, it may be asymmetric. It, it certainly will be cross-domain in many places. Uh, but there are probably some places where uh, we can sustain some advantage. And the advantage against, you know, Russia is not going to be the same as the advantages against China. Uh, so we have to adapt that and be able to think through those kind of areas. So that's, that's the short answer in the strategy, and that's why it's classified. I like it. I think there's, yes, sir. And, and this is probably our last question. <clears throat> Carlos Avillon, I'm, I'm an economist. And the question would be probably for Mr. Harrison. Um, why is there this general perception that spending in defense um, is negative, subtracts wealth from a nation? When I look at them as an economic historian to the history of this country, I see um, a massive acceleration in the rate of economic growth during the Civil War for, for the North. I see the fastest rate of economic growth the U.S. attained from 1940 to 44. It averaged 12% annually while having the largest budget deficit as a share of GDP and the largest um, public sector debt as a share of GDP. The Korean War also saw an acceleration in the rate of economic growth, also the Vietnam War. <clears throat> Why is this general negative perception that defense expenditure um, will will bankrupt the country, like a lot of people say. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't. I, I guess I, I may disagree slightly with the premise of the question. I don't know that there is a general um, thought in the country that uh, defense spending is a drain on the economy. Um, you know, I look at it and say, okay, well, you know, what are we spending as a percent of GDP? Um, you know, it's about three and a half percent of GDP that we spend on defense, and it's probably going to go down in the future as our economy continues to grow. Um, and you look at historical levels, uh, we have spent five, six, ten percent of GDP uh, on defense in the past, uh, and it has not hurt our overall economy. So can we afford to spend this much on defense? I think the data says yes, we can. Um, you know, it's a different question of whether we need to, whether it's, you know, being used properly. Those are all different questions, but can you afford it? Sure. Um, 
Yeah, the you know one of the economic arguments I think has some validity to it, and I will admit I'm not an economist, so I'll ask you to look into this. But uh, the economic multiplier uh, of defense spending compared to other forms of government spending. Uh, and so I think you can make the argument that the economic multiplier uh, is smaller for defense spending than it is for other types of government spending. Uh, and another way of looking at it is, would the money be better used to grow our economy if we, if we taxed it and then turned around and spent it on defense versus not taxing it in the first place uh, and leaving those dollars out in the economy to be used uh, as, as companies and individuals see fit? Um, so, you know, different ways of, of looking at the problem there. I think, you know, bigger picture, though, that this is not a matter of what we can afford or our economy can't support it. It's a matter of priorities within the federal government of where we spend our money um, and what we choose to do with that money. Uh, and so I think it's really just a matter of priorities. And, and, and the issue then becomes one of uh, the debt and the deficit. Uh, and the debt and the deficit certainly are uh, weighing on our overall economy, especially when we have uh, our overall debt is growing faster than our economy is growing. That is a troubling sign. And if you extrapolate that out in the long run, that is not sustainable. Where do you hit the tipping point, the breaking point? You know, hey, we'll, we'll find out once we hit it. <laughs> Um, Some people know. think we're there. Yeah, yeah, no, maybe, I, I, maybe I, we're I, close. I, I, I do have to agree in economics uh, from a small school in Philadelphia, uh, and I'm also an historian, so I, but but not an economic historian. So I think uh, Todd nailed it. It's about the context. Those other periods of time were not when when national debt was greater than than you know GDP. You know, we were at forty percent or twenty percent or ten percent. So I think the context and maybe the growth uh, uh, relative growth in those periods of time. Yes. So, and then you go take a look at the period where we're at now compared to, say, the post World War II period, where we're at the same level, about 100% of debt. Uh, we were still a creditor nation. We were young. We spent 2% on health care. We exported energy. We exported capital. Um, we were relatively young and not as educated, uh, say, today. Uh, and now we're back at the same level over, you know, 50 years. And what's different is we're older. We're spending 16% of the economy on. Uh, energy, or 8% on energy, vice four. We're spending 16% on health care. Uh, we've gone from 2% of entitlements to 50% of the budget, going up to 77% of the budget on social, medical, and income security. We're a very different uh, populace and a very different country than we were 50 years ago. And 50 years ago, Japan and Germany, the two manufacturing economic rivals, were rubbleized, and we were 50% of world GDP. And now we're going from 50 to 40 to 30 to 25. We're going to go below 20 now, and China's going to surpass us. And our competitors are not robalized. They're the, the number one steel producers, electrical producers, manufacturing and trading uh, partner for all of our friends and allies. We're in a very different context now and in the next 10 or 20 years than we were in the last 20 years. And we need to get competitive about it and understand it. Uh, I think the context is the most important part of that. I'm not sure we're going to get high rates of growth by uh, borrowing money. Uh, yeah, you, you, you. There are better ways to stimulate the economy. If that is the intent um, of the spending, there are better ways to do it than spending on defense. Uh, I think what you spend on defense should be driven by what your threats are and what your strategic aims are. 
um, you know, and, and let you know, spend according to that. Uh, don't use it as you know, an economic stimulus, stimulus program because it's, it's not the most efficient way to do that. And I think that's the last word, ladies and gentlemen. Thank, please thank our panelists. Thank you so much for coming out today. This uh, The entire uh, event will be ready for your posterity and watching again online whenever you want to re-watch it. And so, but, so thank you so much for coming today, and have a great day.